All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Not that this is anything new, but aging women in Hollywood were and still are thrown aside on the trash heap once they pass a certain age. Let's say 25. They are viewed as lesser than their worth because age does not equal beauty. That cutoff between beauty and washed up starlet has only been pushed back and back and back over the years. Now we celebrate them and praise actresses when they are daring to show their age. It can be viewed as something fantastic and brave, even human. It could also be the moments that women have been waiting for to prove that their beauty is lasting and that age is natural. In terms of Best Picture winners, we see a huge turn in the 1950 winner, All About Eve. So yeah, starting out saying like this isn't like a new idea or new concept, like, oh, women aging is like this huge storyline or huge trope that is used. But the movie we are tackling today, All About Eve, revolves around that idea about aging and womanhood in Hollywood and theater and how that becomes a detriment or I guess used to be because we like to think that we have improved in this age of Hollywood. So what are your initial thoughts on where we are in the industry in terms of like womanhood and age, but also seeing a film like all about even how that was depicted and how that maybe forwarded and pushed the narrative to a different level. I think that you can say partially that it has changed. It definitely has. I, I would be a lie to say it hasn't, but it's in my opinion, probably like a marginal change where you still have actresses nowadays like drastically changing, not drastically changing their looks, but drastically doing a lot of different things to preserve their look, I'll say, and, and using plastic surgery as, as a lot of uh, kind of maintenance to like preserve their career in Hollywood. So it's definitely still way more likely to see an older man in Hollywood, I, I would say, even today, and then especially back in the day when we were talking about 1950s. So it's already such a judgment against someone and you wrote 25 and that seems like insanely harsh, but I would imagine back in the day, 25 would be that kind of cutoff. Like if you were over 25, it would probably be almost impossible to even break in as a woman in Hollywood, just, just based on that age and that number alone. And it, I think we've seen, I don't know about direct references and in, in some of the films that we've seen so far, but we've definitely seen, in just the films itself not the way they're representing the characters but in some of the actors like we have like William Powell and uh, he was much older than his leading lady and we have uh in some of the like Frank uh, Capra films the the leads were much older than the women I think it's just very common that we're seeing a trend throughout a lot of these movies is that the men are much much older and even when they're getting into like their 40s they can play like the young late 20s role while women very much will not if you're in your 30s you're already kind of waning in your career so it's it's pretty disturbing but it's kind of always been that way especially about an industry that's obsessed with sex and, and the way you look so it, it makes sense but it also doesn't make any sense because you know it's it's films should be used to to show off the world the ups and downs and every kind of which way and every kind of person so i think we've gotten closer to that but there's definitely a long way to go yeah, we definitely have gone a long way, and I still think that we have ways to go. I kind of threw that 25 in there as this like meme joke that Leonardo DiCaprio stops dating women when they, oh, they pass the age of 20. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why I use that. But it, it is sort of true, and especially when you think about All About Eve, uh, the character of Margot, played by Betty Davis, is constantly worried about you know women younger than her and taking over for her. And She uses the idea of like 20 this, 20 that, 20 being the years that you can be the star 
and this you know this really famous person really show off the the prime of your powers as an actress but to her and and honestly watching this movie betty davis she's a fucking powerhouse in her quote-unquote older age so it's certainly interesting and it's not a foreign i don't think it was a foreign idea in 1950 to start talking about this because in the exact same year sunset boulevard came out and it's the same exact concept about an aging star who tries to recapture their youth. I mean, I'll be in a very different way. Yeah, very, very, <laughs> very different way. But that whole idea of like, I'm an aging star, but I'm going to change or, or try to capture those golden years back is, is certainly fascinating that Hollywood would capitalize on that and make two films in the same year in 1950 talking about this. And to even further that point, you know, doing some research and not that there's like so much research you really have to do to find uh, talking about age and, and womanhood in Hollywood. I stumbled upon a New York Times article recently and it uses Sunset Boulevard as the example of an aging woman. So uh, to me, that also says that Sunset Boulevard has stood the test of time about uh, with this subject matter compared to All About Eve. But All About Eve is still the best picture winner. So we get to do the deep dive of that. Uh, but I wanted to quote some uh, parts from that article because I thought it was interesting. So the quote says, back then and until quite recently, anything past 40 was considered ancient in Hollywood years. It's always been this youth-obsessed industry. Men could find roles, whatever their age, but women might disappear from the screen during permenopause or emerge a few years later in supporting roles, usually a dowdy, eccentric, or senile grandmother, evil stepmothers, or spinster aunts. Great actresses are kind of enjoying being non-glamorous and not trying to look 20. They're looking their age, and they're proud of that, and they work with it. And I think that's actually something that, that holds true to what Betty Davis did in this movie is that she embraced the age, she embraced her looks and said, this is me, this is how I'm going to do this performance. And I think it really worked well to her advantage. And I think that even much so that even Roger Ebert wrote in his review of the film, growing older was a smart career move for Betty Davis. His personality was adult, hard-edged and knowing, never entirely comfortable as an ingenuine, but she was glorious as a professional woman, a survivor or a bitchy predator. And that's the part that I also want to talk about was this bitchy predator. Because I've seen this come up talking about this movie for all about Eve of calling Margot bitchy. I don't think she's bitching. I think it's wrong to say that she's bitchy. I think that she's a, a misunderstood woman in her time. And I think that she's not given the capabilities or the platform to actually express those feelings without being told you are paranoid. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just being crazy because you, know, you shouldn't be thinking about this. And I think that. We this is going to continue throughout our whole conversation in this episode is because Margot has, I think, full rights to feel like the way she does, especially about her age and her powers, because she is still a powerful actress and still a powerful performer. So I kind of just wanted to open up the floor to you now just to see like what you feel about that. Is there anything else we need to kind of discuss in this cold open we usually do? So I won't go into Betty Davis's performance too much in All About Eve as Margot because I want to save it for the rest of the podcast. I'm sure we'll kind of dig too deep into it. But I think about this in in terms of the future, like where do we go from here and how film will change with especially women. And I mean, we just had a Best Picture last year, which was all about a woman and her struggle through grief and, and traveling the country. And I mean, I think that was a pretty big step forward in terms of just best pictures and representing women in general. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big step in stride. But at the same time, what most of theaters are getting and what most audiences are getting are big blockbuster franchises that have definitely have women in them, but they're never really the leading stars. They're always like the either the kind of like sex symbol or just the supporting cast to to help bolster up the rest of the the crew. 
So we're we're kind of working backwards, and it's almost like the streaming services and and the shows is what's kind of pushing these these great female performances. Like I think of like the Mayor East Town, which was a really truly complex female character that was like really interesting and and definitely is progressing women in in fiction on film and and TV. So yeah, I just hope there's a future. I think it probably it's probably television where we really get into these deeper characters and these different character studies where we really kind of see these different sides. And uh, we don't just see, you know, men fighting and punching people, which I also love, though. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's uh, completely fair to say. Yeah, it's it's hard to predict where the film industry is going to go with this. I think that we are doing a better job about talking about aging women and, and, and praising that. And at the same time, it still feels like that we are still regressing back to the ways of 1950, 1951. I can go on for every year from that decade and the decades before of just how women were treated in Hollywood. But it's time to answer that age-old question. Is All About Eve worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1950? The general atmosphere is very Macbethish. What has or is about to happen? What is he talking about? Macbeth. We know you. We've seen you like this before. Is it over or is it just beginning? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All About Eve, a seemingly timid but secretly ruthless superfan, insinuates herself into the lives of an aging Broadway star and her circle of theater friends. Margot Channing is a Broadway star who has recently turned 40 and worries about what her advancing age will mean for her career. After a performance of Margot's latest play, Aged in Wood, Margot's close friend Karen Richards, wife of the play's author Lloyd Richards, brings in besotted fan Eve Harrington to meet Margot. Eve tells the group gathered in Margot's dressing room, Karen, Lloyd, and Margot's maid, Bertie Coonan, that she followed Margot's last theatrical tour to New York City after seeing her perform in San Francisco. She tells an engrossing story of growing up poor in Wisconsin and losing her husband, Eddie, in the South Pacific during World War II. Margot is moved, and befriends Eve, takes her into her home, and hires her as an assistant, upsetting Bertie. Eve quickly manipulates her way into Margot's life, acting as her secretary and adoring fan. She places a long-distance phone call to Margot's boyfriend, Bill Sampson, when Margot forgets his birthday. Margot becomes increasingly distrustful and bitter towards Eve, particularly after she catches Eve taking a bow to an empty theater while pretending to wear Margot's costume. Margot asks her producer, Max Fabian, to hire Eve at his office, but instead, Eve manages to become Margot's understudy without Margot's knowledge. As Margot's irritation grows, Karen feels sorry for Eve, in hopes of humbling Margot, Karen arranges for her to miss a performance so that Eve may perform in her place. Eve invites the city's theater critics to attend the performance, including Addison DeWitt, which is a triumph for her. Later that night, Eve tries to seduce Bill, but he rejects her. Instead, Addison takes her under his wing and interviews her for a column, harshly criticizing Margot for resisting young talent. Margot and Bill announce their engagement at dinner with the Richards. Eve summons Karen to the ladies' room and, after appearing regretful, delivers an ultimatum. Karen must recommend her to Lloyd for the lead role of Cora in Lloyd's next play, where she will reveal Karen's role in Margot's missed performance. Before Karen can talk with Lloyd, 
Margot announces to everyone's surprise that she does not wish to play Korra as she is too old for the role. Eve is cast as Korra. Just before the premiere of the new play in New Haven, Eve presents Addison with her next plan, to marry Lloyd, who she claims is in love with her so that he can write plays in which she can be the star. Angered with Eve's antics, Addison reveals that he knows that her backstory is a lie. She was never married, and she had been paid to leave town over an affair of her boss. With this information, Addison blackmails Eve, who he says now belongs to him. Months later, Eve is a Broadway star headed for Hollywood. At an awards banquet, she thanks Margot, Bill, Lloyd, and Karen while all four stare back at her coldly. Eve skips a party in her own honor and returns home when she encounters Phoebe, a teenage fan who has slipped into her apartment and fallen asleep. Phoebe professes her adoration and tries to insinuate herself into Eve's life, offering to pack Eve's trunk for Hollywood. While Eve resists, Addison brings Eve's awards to the door. He sees that Phoebe will play the same role in Eve's life that Eve has played in many others' lives. After Addison leaves, Phoebe wears the elegant robe that Eve wore to the banquet and poses in front of the three-paned mirror, bowing and holding the award. All About Eve was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz based on the story The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr. Produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. Music by Alfred Newman. Cinematography by Milton R. Krasner. And film editing by Barbara McLean. All About Eve starred Betty Davis as Margot. Anne Baxter as Eve. George Sanders as Addison DeWitt. Celeste Holm as Karen. Gary Merrill as Bill Sampson. Hugh Marlowe as Lloyd Richards. Gregory Radoff as Max Fabian. Barbara Bates as Phoebe. Marilyn Monroe as Miss Caswell. And Thelma Ritter as Bertie. So probably the best place to start about All About Eve is the actual beginning of the film, which eerily is exactly like Sunset Boulevard with an opening narration of the plot and then goes into a flashback of the rest of the plot of the film. Interesting. So just yeah. wanted to point that one out there. Much less of a, I, I don't want to say this as like a slight to All About Eve, but it's less of a hook. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the beginning of All About Eve is just like, oh, interesting. It's more, it feels like a more of a stylistic choice than like a, a hook to bra- grab a, you into the plot. A, in a dead way. body in the water. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Not nearly the same, but they are the same in the same way. Yeah. In the yeah. Same. They, they definitely are. But this whole opening intro, I would say it's probably like eight minutes. It's like its own little like short film. Yeah, definitely. Where it's this opening narration, mostly by George Sanders character, Addison DeWitt. And he's talking about the theater and he's talking about everyone's roles in the theater. And I wanted to start there because it's, not only a commentary on roles in productions, it's also a commentary on awards. So it's a very lengthy uh, opening narration, but I'll, I want to pick out some of these. So first he says, the minor awards, as you can see, have already been presented. Minor awards are for such as the writer and director, since their function is merely to construct a tower so that the world can applaud a light which flashes on top of it. And no brighter light has ever dazzled the eye than Eve Harrington, Eve, but more of Eve later, all about Eve, in fact. So first he, and this is from Mankiewicz. You know, so like that's the other thing you have to think about. This is Mankiewicz also talking to say that a writer and director are, are very minor in their roles and that their only job is just to bring the actor or the actresses to the top and have them shine. So my first question is, do you think that Mankiewicz actually believes this? And do you also believe in the fact that Mankiewicz calls these minor awards the one for writers and directors, the one that he would be winning? 
No, I think this film is so tongue in cheek and it's very witty and it's it's a lot goofier than I really expected. I, I this again, I haven't seen this film going in. In fact, I even thought Eve was Betty Davis. I, <laughs> I had no idea that she wasn't the lead character and she wasn't Eve just because every photo I've seen from this movie is just Betty Davis being um I don't know what the right word for. I was going to say uh snipe mm. a lioness. Yes, that's definitely, yes, a witty lioness. (laughs) So I didn't know really what to expect going into this. But in terms of that writing, and especially watching it again with you like a second time, you really get how like tongue in cheek everything is. And it's definitely not what he feels in real life. It's more so a commentary on what audiences, I think, feel. And uh, this is very much the time where trades are blowing up. And it's very much about Hollywood gossip and there's all these different trades kind of like talking about this and no one really cares about the directors. They just care about the final performances and the, the final film and the product. So I definitely think this is just a funny tongue in cheek and I think it's a really, really, really funny way to start a movie. So Addison goes on to say, I, meaning him, I am a critic and commentator. I am essential to the theater, which kind of is like my own personal take of like critics and commentators of film and even just this own po- this podcast is that none of it's bullshit and all of it's bullshit none of it matters so to say that, that it, it is essential is kind of a slap in the face to the people actually doing the productions the people who work behind the scenes the people who write who direct who or, i don't know even talking about the people who star in it just everyone who puts together production they are essential the person who comments on it from afar and just takes in the the big picture at the end your opinion doesn't matter it's about the people who put the effort in behind it and their own sweat, blood and hard work that makes it great. That makes it a reality. So I, I it's funny that that line is in there. He also goes on to say about uh, Karen Richards, who's played by Celeste Holm, that she is the wife of a playwright, therefore of the theater by marriage. Nothing in her background or breeding should have brought her any closer to the stage than row E center. So there's that tongue in cheek and wittiness that you have right there. That's, Really great writing and a really great line, but also a big slap in the face to the people outside of the theater that you can only be born into this, that which also plays into the whole that there's this nepotism in Hollywood going on that only people within certain families can really move up and be a part of this world. So I think that's it's a huge slap in the face, but it's a really great line that uh, to me that stood out in this opening monologue. Yeah, it's very much, again, just tongue in cheek about it's definitely still about theater. Obviously, the whole story is about it, but it's definitely about film as well. And I think you mentioned comparing this to Sunset Boulevard, and we'll definitely talk about more of the two. And I think that's probably why Sunset Boulevard is remembered more fondly or just really remembered more than All About Eve is because it's more so based in film industry and it's a film actress. And if you love film, you're probably going to more so lean into the film that is more about film and, and less about theater. So that's just my two cents. Addison continues and he says, and this is about Max Fabian, the producer, there are in general two types of theatrical producers. One has a great many wealthier friends who will risk a tax deductible loss. This type is interested in art. The other is one to whom each production means potential ruin or fortune. This type is out to make a buck. Now, I haven't really asked you this, but do you feel like the producer in this film shows either way? Because I actually think Max is not this like, I got to get all the money in the world type of person but he's actually doing it for the art but also it's a little ambiguous because we don't get much of his character yeah he's barely in this movie I don't, I don't even know if you could argue one way or the other to be honest he's just like this goofy guy that gets yelled at in like one scene and he's in a couple other random scenes in the background that I, I don't even know if i could like come up with even a sentence he said in this movie so yeah 
He's definitely there, but I just don't think he's really present enough to really like make a commentary on producers. No, he, he definitely doesn't, which I think lends itself more to the ambiguity of producers themselves. But this whole speech ends with time has been good to Eve. Life goes where she goes. She's the profiled, covered, revealed, reported what she eats and what she wears and whom she knows and where she was and when and where she's going. Eve, you know all about Eve. What can there be to know that you don't know? So a few things. One is the title of the film, All About Eve, is right there. From the what I've read is that uh, Daryl F. Zanuck, the head of 20th Century Fox Studios at the time, basically saw that and was like, that's what you should name the movie, All About Eve. And I think it's actually a really, really good title because I think it's ambiguous. It's it's like, oh, like what what is it about her? Like, like what? And to Addison, he's basically saying, well, we know all about her, but do we know everything about her? Yeah, and that's like the secret that we have to reveal. That's that's kind of like the hook that they're trying to drag you in is who is Eve? Why do we know all about her or do we really know all about her? Which, uh, yeah, not to compare to Sunset Boulevard, but not as dramatic of a hook, I got to say. No, it's definitely not as dramatic. So finally, the last thing I want to talk about, which was he's talking about everything we know about her and that what she eats, where she is, what's being reported on is exactly what thrusted Margot in this situation to her edge, to her mental edge, where she's like, am I this, you know, starlet? Like, is my age really impeding everything because of her age and because of how publicly known that she was, all that was being scrutinized, all that was under a microscope. So yeah, she may be 40 in the movie, but to her, it feels like she should just be ancient at that point because everyone knows her and, and has known her for so long. She's also surrounded by people that are like half her age too. So that definitely would probably amplify it. And, and constantly remind her of that. Yeah, 100%. So this opening scene, I think, is really good. It, it gives some really great facial reactions by a lot of the characters. And I think watching it, you know, a second or third time, you start to pick up on this, like, weight that's in the air that you can, like, because you know all the drama that ensues after this point in the film. So, you know, everyone's reactions. You can see, you know, Bill's, like, kind of disdain for when Eve gets up to accept the award. You can, you can really feel that in the air in the film. I think it's, like, really good. And you wouldn't get that for a first time watcher no you can tell margo like doesn't give a fuck she's just like i'm so over this like you can tell that she you don't really that's funny because even the second viewing you can't really tell what she's trying to like emote like what she's trying to say but you can clearly tell that she just doesn't care that eve is on the stage like she's so over her at this point which is exactly what she is when you see the film so the scene dissolves and it's picked up by karen's narration celeste holmes character and we get to the moment where we first meet Eve and we meet all these other characters. So we first introduced to Eve and she's standing in this alleyway of of the Broadway theater that Margot is performing on. One, also the the play that Margot is uh, performing is called Aged in Wood, which I thought was like really, again, perfect nailing that whole theme of age and making her be like just a whiskey, which is just even better of age, honestly, in my own opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say she's either whiskey or wine, right? It's got to be one of the two. I would say whiskey. That's my, but maybe wine. Her horse like voice, you know, that like harsh kind of voice to her. Yeah, I could see that. That like bite to her. But anyway, so we, so we meet Eve. She's wearing this like trench coat and and this hat that I said that John makes her look a little boyish. And there are people have pointed out maybe there is some gay undertones in this film. I don't think we really need to tackle that, but I I understand why people say that, but I don't think it's necessarily there, but I think that part fits into that narrative if you so wish to look at it through that lens. But we get to meet Eve, we get to then meet all the other characters and Eve first gives off this like really great monologue about how she was poor growing up and how she was inspired when she saw Margot play in San Francisco after her husband died in World War II. So everyone's like really emotional like, "Oh, Eve, 
And the only person to call her out on her shit is Birdie, played by Thelma Ritter. And I, I just love that part where she basically says, like, the only thing missing was the Greyhound snapping at her heels. <laughs> yeah, she also is Stella in Rear Window. And I love that movie. So she's always has like a that actress always has like such a spot in my heart because I just always think of how great she is in Rear Window. And yeah, Eve looks like the little boy in it who gets eaten by it <laughs> in the ring <laughs> in the raincoat that's that's if you're never seen this movie you can imagine that just a woman dressed up i don't remember that kid's name yeah. well it's funny <laughs> you say kid too because throughout the whole entire movie margo consistently says stop calling her a kid and everyone calls her kid and yeah. junior and like Margot's very aware of the fact and this is after like eve kind of sneaks her way in there Margo's like she is knows exactly what she's doing she is definitely a woman do not let her like young beauty fool you which is interesting that she know I mean I think Margo just has that perspective of like distance yourself from fans because fans are insane especially fans that are like this ravenous and and this kind of like at your heels to be in front of you and to like be next to you or even just talk to you let alone take over your career which I'm sure she's not thinking that at the time but that's no. like that's what makes this movie much better on a second rewatch. I actually like kind of didn't like the film at all when I first watched it. And then giving it like another second rewatch, you see so much more complexity into the film and more into the writing and this whole speech that Eve gives. It's like, it feels so phony, especially after you've seen the movie and you can totally tell it's like almost her practicing and memorizing this. And it's like, this is her star performance is her getting this opportunity to be in front of these people, these people with a lot of power to then show off her grand performance to sell them on it. And she does. And that's such a fascinating thing that you don't really realize until the movie's over. And especially when you see it a second time, it adds so much to the film and especially to everyone's performances. Well, let's talk about then Eve and uh, Ann Baxter who, who portrayed Eve because to me, and, and one of the most interesting things about this is that we hear about this great, audition performance that Eve gives and that she gives another great performance when she gets to finally step in for Margot when Margot misses the play. And yet we as the audience never get to see that. But what we get to see is Eve essentially playing and, and acting this whole entire movie, pretending to be someone that, that she's not. And so, yeah, it, it does seem in that moment when you know everything that, wow, she really played that up, that she has been rehearsing this. She's, you can probably tell she's been sitting in whatever single room uh, that she's been staying in New York for the last like few weeks, stalking Margot is like in the front of the mirror. Like this is what happened. I grew up with this poor family. I grew, you know, I worked in a brewery. I met this guy named Eddie, and you can tell that it's all right there. And to open it up to the bigger picture is the fact that she's acting the entire time in the film, which is a little demented and horrifying, and, and also fascinating. Yeah, I feel like you don't really even get to see the real Eve until the last scene, which is kind of fascinating. Like. You don't really realize who she is or the person she is because she's pretending to be this person. And we don't really see her get to that level of success until the very end. Like we see the like the trajectory. We know she's going there. We know that the plot of this film at this point, especially when you get through it like halfway, that Margot is, is getting replaced. And she even knows that and she sees that. But you don't really see that level of success show the real Eve until later on in the film where she herself gets called out and then you really see herself and her true self at the very end where she just doesn't really care about anything and she's like, oh, I spilled tea. The maid will clean it up. Like, she doesn't give a fuck. She's acting like Margot now entirely and not this, like, sweet, innocent girl that she pretended to be. Yeah, she says this in the movie. But somehow acting and make-believe began to fill up my life more and more. It got so I couldn't tell the real from the unreal. 
except that the unreal seemed more real to me. Again, really great writing, but also it's really twisted. It's 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 very bizarre and like I for me watching this performance and Anne Baxter, she's good, but she's nothing that I actually find to be that great about her performance. I think that because she's so cool and calcul- calculating and very uh, unemotionless, you know, throughout the entire film, or I should say emotionless, unemotionless would be emotional, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so who just like stoicism is very, it, you can tell right away, but also it, now after watching it and watching it another couple times, you're like, oh my God, like she's completely blanketed herself to make sure no one can get in. Yeah, definitely. I, I, for, I kind of felt that way too, where I was like, well, I wish we kind of had more of her and, and spoiler, the, the fact that we would have, her vouching for and best actor or best actress category instead of best supporting is it's pretty wild to me because I think in terms of screen time they're probably split maybe and I would probably say that Betty Davis gets a lot more screen time than he oh, probably does way more right yeah because she has all the solo scenes she has the scenes with the Karen or Celeste home and all of that has to build up to the plot with Eve and what Eve gets is those small little bits where she is pretending or she's just being a maid essentially to Margot and, and try to like sneak her way slowly into her life. And it's George Sanders playing uh, Addison DeWitt who really kind of like literally smacks it out of her to finally like reveal her inner truth and what she's been hiding this whole time. So it's like she has a really complex performance, but they also just don't give her enough scenes to really like allow that to break down. And they also don't really allow her to kind of turn and really like show how evil it is like they just kind of keep her character as like she knew what she was doing but she also didn't really like see how it was that bad really like they there's no like repercussion that she has there's no like turn where she like reveals her true cards or her true face to Margot and is just like I got you and I think that is part of why her performance is great and it's really interesting especially the opening scene where she's like really acting inside of an acting performance it's really fascinating layered but we really don't get enough of it and I think that's some of my issues with the overall film is that there's a lot of loose ends that are somewhat tied up but they're more tied up in and thematically and less so in the actual plot and storyline yeah so let's talk about one of the scenes that gets to really show off eve and 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 her uh her, her villainess her evilness in the film and also kind of the turning point where Margot's like oh what are you doing here and what like what is it about you so it's this scene where Margot is doing a performance of Agent Wood and the shot that we actually get for the most part is a perspective from Eve watching from the wings of the stage. She's wowing, she's watching people take bows at the end and you can just tell she's only fixated on Margot. So Margot comes off the stage and Margot's like, oh, just like just finish this great performance and look at me, I'm Margot Channing and and she's really great and then all, but then Eve is like, oh my god, I get to help Margot undress i get to help her out of this costume i get i'm the one that gets to do this and then it transitions into the dressing room and one this entire scene inside the dressing room is just one shot which Mankwitz did uh, he did throughout the entire film there's some really great scenes where it's just one shot so it really adds more into that this is a play and this is based off of broadway it's all supposed to happen like right here right now there's no cuts it's this is what it is you know on the stage so Margo, so Eve gets to watch Margo get undressed. She's really happy and she tries to get Margo to compliment her on these like window shades that she put up. 
and Birdie's a little like, like who fucking cares about these window shades? <laughs> but Eve is just sit, like standing there like, Margo, are you going to notice me? Hey, Margo, look, look at what I did. And so Margo doesn't catch on just yet. But then Eve being the sweet little doll that she is, is like, well, I'll take your dress to the wardrobe department to get fixed. And when she does that, Birdie's like, hold on a second. You like not to Eve, like you've left the room, but she went to Margo. Like you can't let her do that. There's, there's like a set of rules and she, so this is a good moment because Birdie says like, there's no union for me. I'm slave labor. But then when it comes to the union jobs that Birdie continues to talk about in the wardrobe is that the wardrobe people, are the ones supposed to be taking this and how like that can cause a whole thing. So it takes a little bit of a peek behind the curtains to the production industry and, and issues that go on even for today. But Margo's like, okay, I'll step in and I'll try and get this. And that's when she leaves the room. And what she sees when she leaves her dressing room is Eve looking at a mirror on the stage out to the audience, holding up the dress to her and like pretending to take bows. And this is where Margo is like, what the fuck are you doing with my dress? Like, why are you standing out here like this? I feel like this is where a lot of people get the the thought or the ideas that there's a lot of like sexual frustration whether it's about these two women that are secretly in love with each other or if it's just eve that's in love with uh, betty davis's character Margot. to me i didn't really buy it because i think when we get to the end of the the film and the overall themes of the story is that it's about success and power and manipulation and all the things you do to get to power to get to a place of success so it doesn't really seem like by the end we would still see like Eve madly in love with Margot. Like we would have more of a conclusion, even if it were 1950 and they don't want to directly like say to it or allude to it. I think when you look at like a film like Rebecca, there's much more clear evidence at some sort of like forbidden love there, which I don't feel like this film really tries to do at all. And especially for how sharp and, and just pinpoint accurate the script is when it comes to each of its characters and how they're all manipulating each other or lying to each other. I just think we would get more out of it than we actually do. But Ben, what, what did you think? Did you see that or think that at times or did that change for you over time? No, I still didn't see it after watching it a few times, but I do think that this scene could be used for yeah, that. Yeah, it feels like the height of that, like why you would think that. Yeah, right? exactly. And I, I think it. if you want to look at it that way, sure. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I just don't think that I, you're right. I don't think there's enough there like a movie like Rebecca was trying to say about it. So it's very it's an interesting lens to put on it, but I don't think it's necessarily there. So it's this is a great. So this is like one of my favorite scenes just because, again, you're watching Eve being like very like in snake in the grass. Uh, like and she's like, you know, look at me, Margo. Look what I did. And then she kind of d- d- goes b- beyond the line a little bit too far with, with holding the dress up. Um, and so that ends the scene. Uh, Marco says, Eve, we better let Mrs. Brown pick up the wardrobe. And she gives and she says in this very like, you better put that fucking down, kid, or else I'm going to cause some shit right now type of tone. Yeah, you can see, you can feel in Margot's performance or uh, Betty Davis's performance as Margot slowly building up the suspicion that they that she has and trying to piece together why Eve's really here. You can really see that. Yeah, and, and Birdie's the one who really, you know, is the, who, who starts to push that narrative. Actually, there's a line where she says, I'll tell you how, like she's studying you, like you was a play or a book or a set of blueprints, how you walk, talk, eat, think, sleep. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But as the film progresses, the height of the film, in my opinion, which is this dinner party sequence, which is about 20 minutes of the film, 30 minutes of the film. Oh, yeah. If I, if I had to guess. And this is where, like, a good... A, a really good meat 
and, and chunk of this film like really sinks his teeth into and, and I think the best part and um, for one you you may recognize this scene with what Betty Davis is wearing it's this really great red dress and it kind of uh, hangs below her shoulders this is designed by Edith Head and one of the things uh, learning about it was that the dress didn't necessarily fit Betty Davis so well but she let the dress fall off her shoulders which I think plays into that age theme of like well a woman that age shouldn't wear a dress so revealing but betty davis is like fuck that i'm gonna wear this very revealing dress and honestly she looked gorgeous in it oh yeah very pretty i mean i mean hands down all the women in this movie are, are drop dead gorgeous and we'll definitely talk about marilyn monroe and it's funny because it's very much not the point of the movie i mean the point of the movie is we have this aging character we have her being taken over and it's very much about how you can still have a successful career while being over 40. And, and Margot's kind of that representation of it. But yeah, there are some drop-dead beautiful women in this film. That goes without saying. So this whole sequence starts off with uh, Betty Davis Margot getting ready. And she's talking to Bertie upstairs in her bedroom. And she's like, oh, where, where's Bill? Where, you know, where, Where's my boyfriend? And Bertie's like, well, he's been here for like 20 minutes downstairs talking to Eve, which... Margot immediately downs a martini and then she leaves the room a little quietly and then she bolts down the stairs in this like very kid like like oh shit gotta get down there fashion and then she slows herself down gets herself really elegant then walks into the room and it's just like what's going on here <laughs> yeah as if she just like happened to turn the corner I love that aspect of the scene that she just progressively keeps getting more and more drunk yeah. because she just like can't even stand this party to begin with no she can't and uh, this uh, and again this is where just the quick and witty writing I think really helps is so when Bill sees Margaret he's like oh I was telling Eve about this uh, the story about me looking the wrong end of a camera lens and Eve me or Margot immediately goes Remind me to tell you about the time I looked into the heart of an artichoke. One saying, fuck off, Bill. I don't give a shit what you were just trying to say. <laughs> There's so many great, great lines like that. And to be honest, this is one of the funniest movies I think that we've seen yet. Just because of how witty it is. You know, we have this like kind of hidden battle between these two women and all the men that are around them. Kind of trying to influence them, change their, change their mind and their decision making, which... We have Margot at the center of it, who is just like such a firecracker, I think is the best way to describe her character, who is just like one of the most witty characters I think we've seen yet on screen. She is just laugh out loud hilarious. I downright think this is maybe the funniest movie that we've watched yet. Yeah, it's it is definitely up there for the funniest ones we've watched, although I might save uh, actually, I don't know. You can't take it with you. It's pretty funny, uh, you know, but I neither here nor there but what this does lead into is another great sequence and and really great scene building so now it's now it's bill and margo going back and forth and it's in this living room and one it's another one of those one take shots and it's cool it's kind of hard to show on through a podcast but imagine a square and imagine betty davis and, and gary merrill going from the top right corner of a square to the top left to the bottom left to the to the bottom right and the camera follows them through each of those parts of of, of the room and of the scene and it's all one take in it and it, and it's really just great blocking it's quick movements from the camera that we haven't really seen much of and i think that this is mankowitz's style and he's really good of of moving the camera around making it seem you know it's like old-time hollywood but now we're starting to see some really more modern takes into it you can tell if it was made today he'd be using a steady cam going all around the room trying to do this all in one take just summer up summing up the cinematography for me honestly it was it was kind of one of the weaker elements for me across the overall film 
I found the lighting to be really interesting. There's like some really like high key slash contrasty lighting where we have the difference between like off stage and on stage, which was interesting. But yeah, to be honest, I found the cinematography pretty like dull and pretty similar to all the King's men too, which is funny. Cause I know you didn't really like the cinematography <laughs> of that movie, but yeah, that this definitely has those really long takes where you give the, the performers to really show off the great lines. And I think that is the star of this film is the script and how freaking damn funny and fast it is. And yeah, I just think the cinematography really kind of serves that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't have that like crazy stylized kind of feel to it. Like we've seen in some of these other films. Yeah, a hundred percent. I definitely agree. The cinematography isn't as strong, but it is the writing that does pick up this movie. So I wanted to keep talking about this scene because this is, some really great back and forth between Bill and Margot. So going, cutting into a little bit of the middle of it. So Bill goes, I can't believe you're making this up. Of course it's funny. This is all too laughable to be anything else. He's talking about him talking to Eve. You know what I feel about the H obsession of yours. And now this ridiculous attempt to whip yourself up into a jealous froth because I spent 10 minutes of a stage struck kid, Margot 20 bill, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, what of it? Margot, stage struck kid. She's a young lady of quality. And I'll have you know, I'm fed up with both the young lady and her qualities. Studying me as if I were a play or a blueprint, how I walk, talk, think, act, sleep. So there's that callback from Birdie from a scene or two ago where she's picking that up where she's like, oh shit, Eve is really trying to copy me. Yeah, and it's it's again, just where that writing is impeccable. It, it doesn't forget like a single line that any character mentioned. It can always come back to you, to it and it can always reflect and kind of manipulate that in another character's eyes. I think it's really fascinating with some of the dated aspects of the script with a lot of the references, a lot of it's like inside Hollywood or mainly about theater and there's a lot of references to random characters here and there um, based on real people that like you wouldn't really understand unless you really know a lot about the time of film or the time of theater. But man, it is so sharp yeah it's incredibly sharp i i I just want to keep reading because it really is so good so bill goes now how can you take offense at a kid trying every way to be as much like her idol as possible margo stop calling her a kid as it happens there are particular aspects of my life to which i would like to maintain soul and exclusive rights and privileges bill for instance what margo for instance you and then the scene keeps going and bill says and to intimate anything else doesn't spell jealousy to me it spells out paranoid insecurity that you should be ashamed of and that margo ends it with cut brilliant what happens in the next reel do i get dragged off screaming to the snake pit <laughs> so i can like hear her saying that and like seeing her mannerisms right now it's it's really comes to life it's it's awesome i mean she and and now maybe is the best time to talk about betty davis and just margo's whole performance because i don't think we've had a leading lady or a female performance of the best picture winners that we have seen that is this powerful that that is this and i'm I'm using the word powerful in terms of like one she understands who she is she's confident in herself she's confident in her age even though that is what she has major turmoil about in the film but she's still confident in herself and and who she is and three their her ability just to talk people and backhand people it is it's just amazing oh yeah i think you could say like claudette colbert was kind of close to that and who is supposed to be in this movie actually yeah who's supposed Betty to be Margot, right yeah 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 which is really fascinating and i honestly that's a that's a great choice if it wasn't betty davis but yeah i mean the, between betty davis and i would definitely want to talk about her relationship with bill simpson who is played by gary merrill who they play such a special couple in film and not even just 
this certain era of film, but literally all the films I've seen in my 26 and almost 27 years of life that they are some of the most accurate and realistic couple that I've ever seen. I mean, we're both in very long relationships. Like, isn't it crazy how accurate some of their bickering is, how they like love each other, but also like can't stand each other. Like it is so accurate to me. I don't know. It is. And also it's when you point that out, it's also very funny that they then got married after this and that they actually, yeah, yeah, they're in the middle of the, well, at least Betty Davis was in the middle of divorce. I don't know about where Meryl <laughs> was. Yeah, but they knows? got they got married, and then and they were married for ten years, and then they got a divorce. And I even think I read a quote being like Betty Davis insinuating that like what we fell in love with was being those characters and all about Eve, and then we realized we're not those. They're characters. not those characters, which is fascinating because that's what this movie is about, and that's kind of what the relationship is about. With whether like Bill actually loves her or she. He loves the person that she plays and the person that like, she kind of puts on. And he loves that like she can kind of be a prop to him. And this movie is kind of breaking a lot of walls down for women. Definitely just not only are we having like a leading lady who's so powerful and, and definitely is the leading performance in this film. But we also have other supporting characters that are very directly in, involved in the plot. And they're really compelling as well. And they all are kind of working together. Like the men are really like the side components to this film and I think you got to give it a lot of credit to 1950 to have a film this kind of progressive in its time I think there's elements to the film that definitely go against women and we'll definitely talk about that like the hitting women the way kind of Addison DeWitt takes over Eve's life at the end we'll definitely get to but yeah really fascinating and, and such powerful performances but back to Margot and Bill yeah I just absolutely love their relationship together and I, I remember even reading a quote about how Betty Davis like even suggested a sequel with just their those two characters and how we can kind of follow them along and she eventually got divorced from uh, Meryl and came back to uh, <laughs> our director here and said forget about the sequel <laughs> I already lived through it I don't need to to make it now so it's like fascinating the way like real life kind of intertwines in, in fiction and filmmaking and how that all kind of comes back to together at the end. Yeah, and then adding to her to Betty Davis' performance, she was going through a divorce, so supposedly she was having these crazy screwing matches before you know shooting days, and you know when she'd be at home, and supposedly she popped a vessel in her throat, which adds to like her her like raspy voice, which I think is it's just a a happy accident, and I love happy accidents in film, and that one seems like a really like it's unfortunate like the emotional toll that she was going through, but it also added to this performance and this character that she has she that she's to me this is how it felt to, to me it was like that margo is constantly screaming from the top of her lungs not to look at me but like hey i'm still here i'm still able to do this and yet her squeakiness and her raspiness is covered up by her elegance that she's able to portray 24 7 to be like well i'm in very in much control of my life and i and i know what is going on so i i think that adds to it and one direction I really liked and um, that Mankiewicz supposedly told her was to treat Margot, that Margot would treat a mink coat like it was a poncho. <laughs> and and right. actually, in the beginning of the film, her mink coat, which is in the dressing room, is just laying about on the floor. <laughs> which makes sense perfectly. Right? Yeah. Like it wouldn't be hung up or anything. I mean, she's so beyond privilege, which that was actually kind of a struggle for me to kind of get through this film. It's, I mean you don't have to relate to all your characters and I especially don't feel like I need to relate to all my characters for me to enjoy the film but there was that kind of struggle where it was just like why do I give a shit about any of these characters like 
none of them are like horrible human beings but like i wouldn't want to hang out with any of these characters like i think Margot's hilarious but there's no she would like destroy my ego in like minutes like there's no way i would actually want to hang out with her and there definitely was that kind of especially for my first watch that balance of like kind of feeling disassociated from them kind of almost being like these characters are almost kind of frustrating in a way and almost crossing the line of being annoying but then after watching another time through and kind of understanding more of Margot's kind of point of view and where she's at in life and she's definitely a very hot-headed character and that's kind of why I ended up loving her is because she's hilarious and the lines that she gets to read are just like some of the best that we've heard yet some of the best insults and uh, just like wisecracks that we've definitely heard in any of the best pictures yet so but yeah, there was that kind of like wall that I had to kind of break down and break through where it was like these characters are all kind of like the worst. Like I <laughs> I, I really stand yeah. by that still that these are all like people I would never want to associate myself with. But in a way, that's kind of the point of the film. Like it kind of shows you what the film industry or what theater or what kind of acting does to you as a person. What do you think about that? I definitely agree. I think stardom really can fuck with you. I think that we see that a lot in today's age with social media and people getting to have their own little corner pockets of fame. And it's really easy to let that go to your head. And yeah, you're right. You wouldn't really want to be with people. Although I would love to go out on a night with uh, with Margot Channing. I think that would be one hell of a time. Yeah, as long <laughs> as she's like, got her eyes towards someone else. Because if it's like she's attacking you, like no way you're making it through that night. I mean, I might let it. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, but moving on. And, and we're still in this dinner party scene. Because again, like this is where I think the best part of the movie really is. So the way now we get to, I think, just the pinnacle and like the best line. So Everyone starts to really trickle and show up. I think Margot might be on her third martini at this point that she might have done, at least the ones that we, we have seen. But she's talking with Karen, Lloyd, and Bill. And Lloyd goes, the general atmosphere is very Macbethish. What has or is about to happen? Margot, what is he talking about? Bill goes, Macbeth. And Karen says, we know you. We've seen you like this before. Is it over or is it just beginning? And Margot gulps down one more martini walked up to a little staircase and goes, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, which is just one great shot, great delivery, fucking Betty Davis, 10 out of 10, just delivery of that line. And I just love this like quick little sequence of like, we've known this kind of feeling before. Margo, what the fuck are you about to do? Yeah, we know she's about to like blow something up, right? And I think I saw this was rated as like one of the best lines of all yeah, time. This is or, like, like, top 100, right? Yeah. But at the same time, like, would anyone really know that it was from this movie? Like, I am sure if you asked, like, a big film fan, they would know. But, I mean, a lot of why these lines are so famous is that they're kind of synonymous with everyone, that they kind of know these lines and they can kind of say it. But I feel like this is one of those lines that has kind of gotten taken from this movie and then has just been applied to, like, so many other films. And I can't think of, like, specific references, but this is almost in a way has become a phrase that we just kind of say and it's just become a part of our life that almost we forget that it comes from this movie. I well, don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know if it exactly comes from this movie, but yeah, but the whole idea of like buckle up it's going to be a bumpy night. Definitely. I'm sure the phrase was like before the film. I'm I'm sure, but, but it's the film that popularized the phrase, right? Oh yeah, 100%. And I think that you're right. Like this line alone wouldn't be like, "Oh, what what's that from?" But if you watch the scene or you just watch that moment, I think many people will be like, "Oh, okay. Like that's like that's where that's from." And I think they might appreciate it more because it really is 
a great line. I think knowing the context of, of when it happens and, and how it, it, it is delivered really makes it just that much better. And so the bumpy night continues and then we we just go back and forth between different characters. We now get introduced to Marilyn Monroe. She has a very small part in it. And this is the only opportunity that we get to talk about Marilyn Monroe for a little bit. And honestly, she doesn't add that much to the movie. She just she's beautiful, but she doesn't like add anything. That I think is like, oh, Marilyn Monroe, you were so great. Like that, that like that's where you got your stardom and, and your and you kickstart your career from. I mean, hot take was Marilyn Monroe really ever that great? No, <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest. I mean, she's undoubtedly like one of the most beautiful women to ever exist in Hollywood. Like she's has like the most symmetrical with the, the mole on the side to make her unsymmetrical. She's truly stunning to look at. And you can immediately tell when she steps into frame that like this is someone special. And it's not even the fact that we have this history of it. She kind of just has this glow and shine to her that's kind of crazy to, to even think about because her character is nothing really in this film it's just kind of like a a girl to wrap your arm around as a guy and kind of like bring her around the party she's basically used almost as like a pawn in this film to just kind of be shown off and maybe she was just thrown into this film just because she was getting started they kind of like saw the potential in her and it's funny that she's in this film in particular too a film that's about a young woman kind of like getting her star and working her way into this industry and we have a little like sneak peek preview while it's not her first performance we get a little peek into the star that would be monroe yeah this definitely it's not like it put her on the map but it's like oh who's this marilyn monroe who's yeah. this this blonde beauty and there's some really great lines and mostly her association in the film is with addison dewitt uh dewitt's character and he says, Miss Caswell is an actress, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Arts, which I still <laughs> laugh at every time reading that. Uh, there's another uh, later on in the scene when DeWitt is talking to her and he says, do you see that man? That's Max Fabian, the producer. Now go and do yourself some good. And Monroe replies, why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? And DeWitt says, because that's what they are. Now go and make him happy. And then he sends off Marilyn Monroe, takes off like her shawl she's wearing and she's wearing a revealing dress. And it's like. Ugh, there's that part of the industry there too that is still going on. Yeah, that's that's why I, she feels like just an object in this film to like kind of show off for the men. I I think there could have been more of that like heightened throughout. I mean, this film's already over two hours and you you have a lot going on here in either direction. But I feel like there could have been more of a commentary on on men's abuse. But we'll we'll get more more into the men's roles in in the film later on. Yeah, and uh, finally, just I mean, she's really not in the movie for much. But then later on in the movie, she says to Dewitt, "Tell me this: Do they have a do they have auditions for television?" And Dewitt says, "That's uh, all television is, my dear. Nothing but auditions." So <laughs> this movie does a really good job about talking about media and and commenting on it. You get a perspective from the theater. You get a perspective. You have that TV perspective. You have this Hollywood perspective. They also introduce and they have the criticism and journalism. So really comments on all forms of media, which. I, which I find to be fascinating and that it's very aware of itself and, and knows what's going on and yet still is able to attract the people that vote for it. And it's like, oh, like they clap happy. Like, this is so great. This is so good. It's like this is also pointing at you and making fun of you. Yeah, it's maybe a film that maybe went over people's heads back in the day, right, where they didn't really understand the way they're playing at audiences. I mean, especially in the beginning with all the voiceover. And, yeah, speaking of that, we haven't talked too much about perspective change of the voiceover how do you feel that we open it up and it's uh sanders doing the voiceover kind of introducing everyone and 
how it switches over to different characters throughout the film. Do you think that works like effectively or is it really just like the, the beginning and end cap to the film that kind of works with it? I think that if it was just one narrator the whole time, it would have been fine. But the changing of perspectives makes it a little bit like, what? what's going on? Because then it feels like, is everyone just like writing something together to talk about this? Yeah. For me, it was, it just felt like underused. Like if you were going to do that, then like more heavily rely on, on those perspective changes and switching and maybe give the audience more information. But it almost felt like a little bit half-assed that they continued it. I'm, I'm not sure if that was maybe like an in the edit thing where they were like, uh, this movie's like three hours. We can cut out scenes, but maybe some voiceover would kind of help fill in those gaps. And maybe that was the case. Maybe it was to help like kind of Karen kind of, you know, get her story moving a little bit forward as well. But yeah, that it was really just the beginning and end where they was just like, wow, it's so used perfectly. And it really kind of puts the film in perspective in the very beginning. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and I think that it mostly works. And actually the place where I think it works the best is Karen's whole plot. So the dinner ends. It's, it's very, it, it ends in a kind of a big like back and forth between really Eve and Bill and, and Eve is just a drunken, or I mean, Margot and Bill. Wow. Uh, let me re- restart that. So it ends in this whole thing between Margot and Bill going back and forth. Margot is completely plastered. She is, uh, she was sitting by the piano asking the piano player to play a song, a sad song several times, but it, it goes and it's kind of th- these scenes where Karen starts to realize like, maybe Margot needs some, you know, some humbling. Maybe I got to like take Margot down a notch and, and Eve sort of snakes her way in there to Karen's good graces. Cause she was the first one to Karen's the first one to meet her. Karen kind of took a liking to her. So in this voiceover, it's a really great narration by Celeste Holm. She goes, Newton, they say thought of gravity by getting hit on the head by an apple. And the man who invented the steam engine, he was watching a tea kettle. Not me. My big idea came to me just sitting on a couch that boot in the rear to Margot. Heaven knows she had one coming from me, from Lloyd, from Eve, Bill, Max, and so on. We'd all felt those size fives of hers often enough, but how? The answer was buzzing around me like a fly. I had it, but I let it go. Screaming, calling names is one thing, but this could mean, why not? Why, I said to myself, not. It would all seem perfectly legitimate, and there were only two people in the world who would know. Also, the boot would land where where it would do the most good for all concerned. And after all, it was no more than a perfectly harmless joke that Margot herself would be the first to enjoy and no reason why she shouldn't be told about it in time. So Karen is thinking like, how am I going to fuck her over? And she thinks of this great idea of how to do it. But first, I don't think Karen's a very good friend <laughs> to, uh, to one Margot. And she's supposed to be this close friend to her, this person that Margot can go to that can't understand her. But it seems like Karen's kind of just at her ends with her. Yeah, to be honest, I think she's her and oh man, it's just it's, it's hard. I think her and Dewitt's character are kind of like the worst characters in the film, just because well, Dewitt doesn't really have that much time to really kind of like establish what. Well, he's just he a is. dick in general. He is just a dick in general, and they kind of establish that, and he doesn't really change, and that's that he serves a purpose. It's an important purpose, but Karen also serves a purpose where she's kind of like the third wheel in the plot where she kind of like is slowly turning the plot and no one really even knows it other than Eve. Cause Eve's the one kind of manipulating her. I just don't really think there's really any motivation for Karen. Like, I don't really understand why she does anything in this movie, to be honest, other than trying to like support her husband. But even in supporting her husband, the thing she does doesn't make any sense. And more like, 
causes issues for her husband then it does help which maybe is the point i don't really understand the point to be honest she's kind of there just to like stir up the plot really yeah and and it's these moments where she's like oh it's just a harmless little joke that that margo would understand it's like margo would probably be pretty pissed if she was to find out about this to find out like if for me to you if i was to cause you to miss something i think you'd be pretty <laughs> pissed at me and understandably so and i would never want to do that intentionally so like someone who is a good friend i don't think you'd want to do that intentionally so there really is no true motive besides karen being like hmm i gotta i gotta humble margo because this good girl eve is like getting my good graces and you know what honestly karen kind of gets it at, at the end with you know what eve tries to pull on her so she kind of deserves it it's just like weird with karen because it's like why does she care about eve it's like she kind of says she feels bad for her like she's kind of getting put down by everyone but like why there's no like real connection between the two of them that kind of solidifies why she would care so much about eve and and why she would kind of sabotage her friend that she's known much 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 longer just for this random girl to get a role i don't know it just doesn't really make much sense yeah it really doesn't and and honestly if like you were to tell me that mankowitz got this inspiration because of their os their offset uh relationship i would have believed it because supposedly betty davis and celeste holm hated each other which is really amazing just to watch because they do work well together on set but there's some really great quotes which i think just it's just great so apparently betty davis on the first day and this is from Celeste Holmes' perspective. Celeste Holmes said, I walked into the set on the first day and said, good morning. And do you know her reply? She said, oh, shit, good manners. And I never spoke to her again. And then years later, Betty Davis said in an interview that that All About Eve was a very happy experience. The only bitch in the cast was Celeste Holmes. <laughs> Absolute savage. It's just savagery. And it's it's great because... Because you can tell that this is like sort of real what's going on, but it's hard to also believe that Mankiewicz would purposely rewrite the story to include this. But I think it's just really interesting that that existed out of the realm of the film. So what is uh, Karen's big plan to stop her? Well, her big plan is to use the gas in Lloyd's car because they're upstate with Margot and to make Margot late for the play and make her ultimately miss it. Whoa. Yeah, Which... Like, doesn't make much sense. One, what does she do? Just drive around? Cause they yeah, don't... I think that's what she did. She just didn't refill up the car. She doesn't refill up the car. And then there's a close-up close of the gas tank, which shows that it's half full, which also doesn't make any sense. How did he not get into the... There's just so many things about yeah, how this did he plot. Not <laughs> like, how did he not notice when he got in the car? There's, I guess maybe it's 1949, 1950. There's no warnings that you have low gas in cars back in the day, I guess. And it's just a really weird plot device to kind of control the, the situation and prevent Margot from getting there. And, you know, it works and it does the job. And you get that interesting moment where you see kind of Margot being like, well, like, don't worry, like, this isn't your fault, and you get to see Celeste home kind of play off of that, and you get to see how, like, she feels shitty because she knows what she's doing, and that's interesting, but I don't know. It's just, it doesn't really work plot-wise for me. No, it, it really doesn't, and, like, and what happens is these scenes start to become really full of themselves. They really, they become these really elongated scenes, and it's really, it's dense dialogue, and it's not that it's hard to understand. It's just a lot to follow and to keep up with and some of it's really good but some of it just feels like filler and like so the scene between Margot and Karen in the car while it's cold is really good there's actually a really great moment where the radio turns on and it's uh and it's this it's the radio version of 
this I think it's Liebstrom, and it's this piece that Margot was drunkenly wanting to hear at the party where she was sad and drunk and kept telling the piano player to keep playing it. But as soon as it comes on the radio and she's sober, she says, "I detest cheap sentiment," and turns it turns it off. Which again, great lines. But what do you think that says about her character? I was like trying to think more about that. I'm like, what does that tell you about Margot? Just that Margot as aware of her emotions as she is she's also very unaware i think of the world ultimately around her and that while she was sad and wanted to i don't know if she i guess she wanted to make others sad but i think she wanted to make more the people within her inner circle sad with her it's that she just doesn't she can't pick up on the fact that like what she was doing doesn't apply to now because if she's doing it then that doesn't matter then but when it happens now now she cares about it type of thing yeah yeah you could definitely take it that way and i think part of it for me was alcohol kind of like opening you up as a person and well as we've learned to... <laughs> in these movies alcohol can just make you a lunatic and become a <laughs> dictator so so it felt like she was kind of letting her guard down and like she truly does like that song but like the real margot the the person that she kind of puts in front of people is not really the real Margot. The real Margot is when she gets hammered and is saying exactly what she wants to say and not really holding her tongue, even though you were, really wouldn't know she's holding her tongue when you actually meet her in person. It, it just felt like a cool little character and like beat that you don't really see very often, especially in these earlier films where it's a small, again, great script writing, small little callback to a previous early moment, but it also like tells you more about her as a character, which is really interesting. Yeah, 100%. So it's really great character development, but then it's involved in a scene that ultimately, like, it serves the plot, but it could have been shortened. It could have just been, oh, shit, we're out of gas. Oh, shit, let me go. Oh, no, we're going to miss it. Okay, next scene. And so basically the dinner party scene happens, and that's like an hour into the movie, and you still got another hour and 20 minutes to get through. And then that's where the film sort of goes down. For me, and I'm pretty sure for you too, John, where there are just so many of these, like, long filler scenes that's, not necessary like the ones with betty davis are great but when it's celeste holm and and her and her husband or it's celeste holm and eve talking and it's like five to eight minutes each it's like oh my god like i don't need this you could have cut out 20 minutes of this film and it would have felt much sharper and and it would have really progressed the story that much more yeah really the most interesting scene from this point forward is the theater scene right or the big kind of like breakdown of margot with uh with the writer and with uh, her husband, Bill, the director, which kind of gives us a lot more into where Margot is at and kind of like her last straw, basically. Yeah. So basically this is, and this is also still pretty early on after the dinner party scene. So we still have like a ton of, you know, there's still a ton of scenes to follow that aren't as great, but, but this is, yeah, this is definitely one of the last like really great meaty scenes. So what happens is, Margot shows up late, which is typical of her, to this audition that was for Marilyn Monroe's character. But because she's late, they have Eve read. And Eve was secretly, without Margot not even knowing, didn't know, was Eve was the understudy. And so then it becomes this huge back and forth between between Margot and then Lloyd and Bill about how she's being treated and how she should be used in the, in, in the plays and then how Eve is used. So Margot goes, and this is sort of towards the end of their back and forth and they were screaming at each other from across the the theater so margaret goes all playwrights should be dead for 300 years lloyd that that would solve none of their problems because actresses never die the stars never die never change margaret you may change this star anytime you want for a new and fresh and exciting one 
fully equipped with fire and music anytime you want, starting with tonight's performance. Lloyd, I shall never understand the weird process by which a body with a voice suddenly fancies itself as a mind. Just when exactly does an actress decide that, that they're, they're her words she's saying and her thoughts she's expressing? Margot, usually at, at the point when she has to rewrite and rethink them to keep the audience from leaving the theater. Lloyd, it's about time the piano realized it has not written the concerto. Such amazing lines. Really great lines. And it's really great back and forth because what Mankiewicz does is he he puts you into this really large space. And it's a space that that gives off all these echoes that in, in, in a theater, you and this was before the advent of like portable mics and, and lav mics, is that you had to embellish. You had to essentially scream out your line so everyone in the theater could hear. And also the theater is constructed to capture that sound. So he's purposely putting you in a space where everything's going to be bouncing off the walls if you're screaming really loudly back and forth. And and he does these tight shots, but yet the, the sound is still so echoey and, and loud and, and boisterous that it's, it, it's uh, contradicting itself between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. But also it's very fascinating from what they're actually saying. It's, it's really funny. And it's honestly some of my favorite like block scene of the film, because like you said, they are, slowly like separating from each other but they're getting louder and louder because they're getting further from each other and they're getting more and more pissed off at each other and it's just great he's building up this tension and they're just beating each other down and it feels like Mankiewicz clearly has had this conversation like in real life with an actress I would imagine uh, or an actor that was just very much you know thought he was the hot shit or she was the hot shit and that she's the reason why people come to see a movie and it's him kind of loving a writer and, and praising a writer, but also maybe a little insider of like what he's experienced and what he's seen. I think he's definitely brought that through and through uh, from the script and definitely into the film. Yeah. And, and again, like that's why when I bring up the, when I brought the whole opening narration of like, is Mankiewicz, is this really his commentary? Because you have these moments here where it feels like, yeah, it feels so real that Mankiewicz had this experience where he said to someone, it's about time the piano realizes not really <laughs> concerto. It's about some time you realize that I'm the one that's making all these creative decisions that I'm the one that's in charge, which is fascinating. And I, that's why I believe that Mankiewicz knew what he was doing, knew how he was putting himself, which then to me also is like, well, is Addison DeWitt supposed to be kind of him in a way? I hope not. <laughs> but I mean, I hope not too. But like, is that was that his perspective? Was like that the type of character that he was trying to put his own thoughts into? Because it can be menacing. And I and a lot of people have not like he's the opening of the film. Is why you're saying that? Yeah, he's the opening, and maybe you know, Mankiewicz is like, well, I can't verbally say th- this out loud as Joseph Mankiewicz, but as Asin Dewitt, I can say this. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think with his character too, you kind of see that it's his character is also probably the way Mankiewicz sees critics as well. I mean, obviously he is kind of a theater critic and that is a direct hand in hand tie, but it's also kind of the way uh, these critics and the way these papers back in the day, magazines had kind of control almost of Hollywood in a way. And with this film, it's direct control where he kind of confronts Eve later on in the film. But yeah, I, I think it's more Mankiewicz is very free with when he wants to kind of show his, own personal hand in the film and when it's actually the character and I think the majority of the beginning is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek play at 
the way he sees the industry or the way people think they see or the way he thinks people see the industry. And then when it's time for DeWitt to be an actual character, he lets him be his actual character. Or maybe he just mixes the kind of the two together and he knows exactly when. I think it works really well. Like we still get DeWitt as a character, but we can definitely tell that's Mankiewicz kind of comes through when he needs to. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I again, I think it's just the smart writing and, and what and ultimately what this film brings to the table is this really strong script that these actors and actresses got to use and, and play off of. So the movie, again, it, it continues, but it's nothing. I don't think it's like anything like that interesting. Were there any like other key scenes really up until the end from when Margot's like, fuck you to Lloyd to then when it ends? There's nothing like really substantial i think it's like good but it's nothing like ah no it's it's a lot of like (laughs) hotel scenes i guess you could call them because everyone's apartment in this looks like a hotel because they're (laughs) all living in very swanky apartment buildings and that just reminded me of the cinematography actually because majority of this film takes place all inside because it's in the theater it's in like a backstage green room dressing room or one of their rooms so we like rarely see outside and and when it is outside we don't really spend much time uh walking around or really seeing what new york city is like which is we get like a projector (laughs) yeah you get the projector a walk and talk um which always feels so hitchcockian to me but yeah it's kind of weird that this film is very much about these people and it's about broadway but yet we really never see that much of broadway which is is pretty interesting uh in terms of scenes following that really dramatic theater scene is great i think really the last really important scene before we get to the ending is karen confronting eve or what she thinks is confronting eve but it's really eve controlling the situation and, and really karen karen realizing that she's been manipulated basically this entire time and that kind of conversation they have in in the bathroom, I think it is, while they're while they're both at dinner separately, is really interesting, and I think it ends up paying off in a kind of funny and disturbing way, where she comes back to the dinner table with Margot and Bill, and she, it's like Margot listened to that conversation but didn't because she expresses exactly what Eve wants her to do without Margot even realizing that, and. All Karen can do is really just laugh because she's like, I can't believe Eve did everything she was just saying she's going to do. And I think that really shows just how well written the Eve character is and and Baxter kind of backs that up and and supporting it by seeming so innocent and and naive when really she's just kind of controlling the situation from the beginning. So did you like that scene, that kind of uh, bathroom and dinner scene? So this is one of the parts of the movie where I'm like, this could have been cut down. Like, I don't. So the purpose I think of this scene was to have what was to have that conversation between Karen and Eve. But the way they set it up is that Margot and Bill take Lloyd and Karen out to dinner. They announce they're going to get married and, and that's all great. But then so all of a sudden, Eve and Addison happen to be in the same restaurant. So are they are they, they have to be still stalking them at, at this point. They're still stalking their every move to be in the, the same exact areas that they are. And then. And then when she does call Karen into the uh, into the bathroom, it, it's it just goes on for so long, and it really just feels like that Eve should like pin her against the walls. Like, listen here, punk, you're gonna get her, you're gonna get me to star in this next play, and that's what's gonna happen. You know, Margot Channing is no more. Eve Harrington is here, and like that's all you need to kind of convey. But what you get is just a very long back and forth where Celeste Holm is like, "Oh me, 
I I fucked this up. Oh God, how could I have done that? Yeah, which is interesting. But I think at this point in the film, we're definitely in the third act. Like we're past that Eve. Like I guess Karen's still an idiot and doesn't realize what you've been doing this whole time. But the audience clearly knows at this point and clearly understands that's where the film's going. So for me, like on a, an actual like plot and structure, I was kind of disappointed in the overall third and really like the second half of the film because I wanted it to go higher. I wanted it to get more intense and. Maybe it takes it out of what the film's trying to be, which is very much more a melodrama than like a psychological thriller. But I was really hoping more for that, you know, go into the perspective like Rebecca, where it's kind of haunting and and maybe it gets heightened and there's like an actual like battle. And I'm not saying it has to be like physically between the two of them, but like what if they actually have to go head to head in in an audition? It, It kind of it boosters up eve but it doesn't like booster her enough to be like wow like now you really get to see what she's like you get to really see how evil she is like she's still doing that innocent manipulative like turn that she's always been doing but we could really get a lot more from that and the fact that they take margo's character to just kind of kind of accept her age and be like yeah i'll go go on tour with this production show that you're kind of trying to get me to do and we don't really understand why she just kind of is like oh i'm married now and they kind of just use that which almost in a way kind of goes against the the way they've yeah. shown women and the independence they've given women in this film so that's kind of the way the film works a lot where it's like you give the woman an inch but you then take a foot back almost in a way with a with some of the plot in this film but yeah, for me, I just wish it was kind of more heightened and it led up to a, a more dramatic moment. But I think that the last scene or a couple scenes of the movie bring that back up for me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the whole, you know, that Margot's going to get married and her whole character changes. And, I, and, and, that's, and that's what annoys me is that marriage isn't the thing that should just fix what's going on with Margot. It's the fact it, what should be emphasized is that, okay. I am an older person and okay, I can embrace that. And then how can I make that more? Like, how can I empower other people to accept that? And, but instead it's like, oh yeah, okay. I'm an older person. I'm accepting that. But now that I get married, all my problems were solved because I get to be like every other woman with a happy husband and, and a happy life. And it's like, that's not what it is. Like, that's not how it should be. And I, I like, it's disappointing to see that because you, you feel like that, that, that you are going to make progress, but but then you don't. And it's not like the men in the film really do much to empower the women. The men in the movie kind of just keep calling them ne- everyone neurotic. And you keep, you know, Bill keeps on calling Mar- uh, Margo like a paranoic. And it's really just disappointing because this is a thing that I found in, in Mankiewicz's previous film, a letter to three wives where he uses emotions and women to be like, Oh, you women and your hysterics. Like that's why, you're like this. If you just settle down in marriage, it will just solve all of that. And it's like, no, it's not really how that works. Yeah, there's even a moment where Bill mentions how Margot's, I think it may be at the very end where Bill mentions that Margot's not going to come to a party because she has too much to do at the house. But like, at what point in this movie did Margot ever seem like someone who was going to do anything at the house? No. There's no way, yeah, there's <laughs> no way she's going to be cleaning. Like, what is she doing at the house? That she, it just feels like it goes against her entire character, and maybe that was because she didn't film that long for this. Supposedly, it was only what like sixteen weeks or something like that, yeah, or sixteen, uh, 16 days, days. Yeah, right? supposedly it was 16, sixteen weeks would have been long. Yeah. Sixteen days, yeah, and uh, maybe that's part of it. Where like, oh, we like lost this actress, so we can kind of like fill in her gaps here and there. But you kind of feel that in the last 
20 minutes of the film you're like margot should be here like we should have this like big blowout between margot and eve and it just never really comes weirdly enough yeah and so so we so we sort of lose the big fascination part of this movie and that's margot so the movie and the ending sequence of the movie is it jumps back to the beginning of the movie which was this award that's being given out called the sarah siddons award actually fun fact they actually started uh, giving out a Sarah Siddons Award in Chicago based off of this movie. And Betty Davis uh, got got one. I think the night she got it, Ann Baxter was there. And even though she was friends of Ann Baxter, Betty Davis was not very happy to share the stage. Even though it was like a cute surprise, like, hey, look who's here. Betty Davis is still like, fuck you. <laughs> I feel like she just has that face where people are like, I don't. She hates everyone, basically, yeah. is what people think. Yeah, 100%. So, so he jumps back to what is the present of where the movie starts and it it just kind of ends for all the characters like the eve gets this award then everyone gets up and everyone's kind of just like the main characters of the film are kind of like ah fuck you eve like you kind of get this and margo says to her and i think this is margo's last lines is nice speech eve but i wouldn't worry too much about your heart you can always put that award where your heart ought to be <laughs> the great ending <laughs> line for her it's so funny it, it's it's really great and then eve is kind of like sitting on her spoils and is like oh i really don't have much to look forward to and like addison's still in control of her because addison revealed not to everyone but to eve that he knows all of her background and and that he is just in control of her so eve goes back to her apartment slash hotel where and she's about to leave for hollywood actually to start a film and in her room and this is like a very horror movie shot where she's going to i think she's going to pour herself a drink and then she looks up in the mirror and there's this girl just sleeping in the chair in her living room and she gets frightened and it's this girl phoebe that is again going to start this cycle where eve was to Margot is now phoebe's going to try and take eve's place and that's kind of where this movie ends it's like oh here it comes again. Eve's going to get exactly what she just dished out. It's it's a great scene because, it, again, you kind of it's those callbacks. And clearly Mankiewicz loves callbacks and, and establishing things in film and either twisting it on its head, just like we have in the end, or kind of just replicating it and continuing some sort of like notion. Or maybe it's like the song that comes back into play and it tells us more about Margot. But just like this, we have... Not only that she's going to Hollywood, which from the very beginning, I think at one point Bill goes off to Hollywood and Eve is questioning him like, oh, like, why would you want to go there? Like, are you sure you're going to go there? Like, it's going to be so long. Like, there's a lot of moments in this film where they're implying just how much of a shit show Hollywood is and how it's kind of like where your dreams go to die and where even popular actresses just go to kind of like wither and be used. So there's definitely this like negative connotation with Hollywood. But then at the very end, we have Eve who's kind of excited to go off to Hollywood. She's like, I'm going to be a bigger star. Like she's looking for like more and more success or really just attention. It, it kind of feels like at this point. And this is really where I feel like we see the real Eve. Like she doesn't give, she doesn't really care about anyone but herself at this point. And it's very, very clear that there's one moment that we didn't talk about that I just remembered that's important for Eve it's the whole big fight that Eve has with uh, DeWitt kind of DeWitt coming to terms with Eve and and using that against her and basically telling her exactly what the audience is either known or kind of slowly picked up on is that she's been manipulating everyone her origin story was a lie she knows he knows about everything she's done to get up until this point and he basically kind of blackmails her to he says you're mine essentially right 
Yeah, I think he says like you belong to me. You now. belong to me now, right? Which is kind of odd. Like what kind of power does he have? I mean, I guess a lot more than we really understand. I was just kind of confused about what that really means for an actress, like with a theater critic kind of saying that. Like, what does that even imply for an actress? Like, is he the one who's going to, like, tell her to choose certain roles? Like, is he the one who would convince her to go to Hollywood? There's all of those aspects. And he slaps her, which is kind of like the big climax of the scene. And she's bawling. And it's probably the big dramatic Oscar kind of scene that you would grab. Especially for George Sanders, because he, he gives a really good performance as to it. It's... Again, it's this very like cool and 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 conniving character that's like, oh, you're a little disgusting. It's this really just sick, you know, scene by by Dewitt's character because, I to me, I don't think he's trying to be like your mind in a sexual way. I think he's saying like your mind in that I'm gonna use you to further myself to get the inside scoops of things to have this voice in the theater that are now in film that I get to use for like my scoops and my big stories. And that's how I sort of looked at it. I don't think it's funny because I don't think DeWitt's character is a very sexual character. I mean, he uses Marilyn Monroe, but he doesn't really do anything about it. He's just like, it, this is just arm candy. I don't think he really gives two shits. That's Marilyn Monroe. Like this beautiful woman next to him. It's just like, here's this a- another actress. Hey Eve, how can I get into your good graces now? Yeah, maybe it it is that. Maybe that relates to the overall theme of like looking for success and power and this his this is his way of kind of gaining that success and that power and it's also showing kind of just how gross and how much of a fraud a lot of you know a lot of these industries are with like we have a critic that's getting insider scoops because he knows about the insider details of this woman faking and, and faking her way to the top basically. It's like, has this happened before? I don't know. Is this based on anything that's actually happened before? But it really does a good job of at least showing just how gross both sides can be. Like, whether it's the way, like, women will manipulate each other or it's the way, like, a man will kind of use his assertance and dominance over women in order to gain success as well. And we don't really get those from the other characters because they're loving husbands for all that we really see with Bill and, and Lloyd. But... It's with his character where we get, like, the other side, which kind of shows just how, like, manipulative uh, the men can be. And even if they're not even directly involved in in all of Eve's struggles or all of Eve's kind of scheme, he sees right through it and he uses it for his own gain. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that before we get to the, the finale because it's an important change for Eve. Yeah, it's totally fair. And so now we're at the end of the movie. Phoebe is like, okay, Miss Harrington, like, I'm going to be the next you now i'll i'll take care of you i'll take care of that dewitt even meets phoebe in the front room when he brings back the award to give back to eve and dewitt's like oh here's the next person i'm gonna use and manipulate and then the film ends with phoebe going into eve's room she puts the award down puts um puts on the like shawl that eve was wearing which is like this fur shawl it's really nice and then she's looking in this three pane mirror and she starts bowing to herself. And what's really cool is the mirror reflects onto itself. So you get like hundreds of these Phoebes all like looking at each other. And so it ends on this really cool shot with a movie that isn't like the most cinema, like from a cinematography standpoint, like one of those great films, but it's still another, it's another great story. The writing's really good and it ends on this really great shot that is one of my favorite shots I think we've seen up until now. It's a really cool one. Yeah, it's a really stunning shot because the mirrors create like endless copies of her. And 
it definitely plays into the themes as well of self-obsession and kind of like imagining the audience in front of her. And we really don't know anything about Phoebe. We just kind of see her beauty just like we did with Eve. And we just see her kind of like naive innocence with Eve as well. I will know this is probably like the third or fourth movie now that we've seen Best Picture winner where someone is just inside someone's room or dressing <laughs> room. You know, it's a weird trend now that we've seen like at this point, it's like 10% of the movies that we've seen. <laughs> there's a scene with someone in someone's room. Yeah. It's a really strong scene, especially thinking about you know Eve's whole journey and thinking about this kind of being a repetitive cycle. Looking back on it now, it's like, yeah, it is really heavy-handed. But for 1950, I feel like this is like an insanely smart move to, to make as a screenwriter and insanely ahead of its time in the way it kind of creates that cyclical kind of journey in the same way that I think of the lost weekend creates that kind of journey with its use of voiceover and it's kind of use of the same shot, but kind of reversed. And I think of it it, really similar ways where the film is, is using this kind of final beat to show not only how much Eve has changed, but also how this like continues on. Like this will always be a thing as long as like fame and celebrity and, and really it's not even just beyond fame and celebrity. It's even more so just about success in general and like what people will do uh, to obtain that. And I think that's a perfect representation of where, where to end the film and, and how to kind of wrap up everyone's story. I just wish we got more from Margot. Like why couldn't we get like a little bit more like this still could have been the last scene, but like maybe we get a little bit more of Bill and, and Margot before the film ends. But yeah, those are only like my small little critiques of the end. Otherwise, I love the last scene here. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that after this whole time of getting so much of Margot that you want her, and it's not like you don't get enough of Eve, but really Margot is the more interesting character. It's really her story. And and we brought up before about changing perspectives. Eve was never brought up as that was one of the perspectives. So to end on her as the ending storyline it, again, it, it satisfies that commentary of like this is a cyclical thing that you, that age is going to be a factor uh, in, in the process of, of Hollywood and Broadway, and that it, and that there's going to be another Phoebe, that there's going to be another Eve, that and it's probably going to be someone like Margot probably did something similar in her uh, own time. So, it I think it's an interesting commentary to end the movie on, but I I again agree that I wish I had just another Margot scene just because she's so great and so witty and such a very powerful character. So I think that wraps up our main conversation of All About Eve. So we're going to jump right into the 23rd Academy Awards. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Services rendered beyond the whatever it is of duty, darling. Come on, I'm the host. I got to get home before my guests start sealing the liquor. <laughs> Congratulations, Eve. Thank you, Karen. Congratulations, Miss Harrington. Oh, thank you so much. Nice speech, Eve. But I wouldn't worry too much about your heart. You can always put that award where your heart ought to be. The 23rd Academy Awards were held on March 29th. 1951 at the RKO Pentagius Theater and awarded Oscars for the best in films of 1950. This year's show was hosted by Fred Astaire and this was the first year in which the Oscars were shot and recorded on color film. Academy Honorary Awards went to George Murphy for his services in interpreting the film industry to the country at large. 
Another one went to Lewis B. Mayer for distinguished service to the motion picture industry. And finally, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Daryl F. Zanuck. And this is Zanuck, this is Zanuck's third and final time uh, being given the Thalberg Award. And he was actually given it the first time the award was given out. So uh, maybe that was like an early indication that, hey, Zanuck, your movie All About Eve is going to win Best Picture. Yeah, like what? What is the point of this award if you're just going to keep giving it to people over and over? Well, like this? It, like, it's more of a it's it it's a producer award, and from what I've been able to understand, it's more of an award for someone who that particularly particular year furthered the industry that really did something that was like wow, that was great, and and I and and yeah, we do get uh, because this was filmed and in color, the Academy on their website gives you all these clips. So I, I watched this one, and it. I think the person who was presenting the award, I'm forgetting who it was, but basically said the board of governors were like, oh, this year we decided that Zanuck had to get this one, like that this was a decision. And maybe it was because of all about even also, I'm, I'm pretty sure a good chunk and and maybe I, I could be wrong about trying to sell the top of my head that a lot of the recent best picture winners were from Zanuck's uh, studios, 20th Century Fox. I think we talked about this not, I mean, it's one of our episodes where it was like the last time the Thalberg reward was given out and it was years and years ago right it was like a decade ago that someone last gotten it. and i wonder just why they've kind of pushed this award to the side and why people don't really even know this award exists and i honestly think it would be pretty funny like we're we're getting closer to the oscars this year in march and it, i think it'd be fun to do our own irving g thalberg memorial award and you know they're not going to probably do it at this year's oscars maybe they're saving it for particular things or particular years or actors or directors that kind of are getting older but i think it'd be fun to do our own irving g thalberg award and kind of award someone for each year of the oscars when we do our own <laughs> mini oscar ceremony yeah i agree and just to give some context so the, the first time it was given out was in 37 with zanuck got it and then osel there was 1938 Hal B. wallace got it 39 selznick got it probably forgotten with the wind so that's pretty and walt disney got it in 41 and then uh, 42 is Sidney Franklin and Halby Wallace again in 43. Zanuck again in 44. 46, they gave it to Samuel Goldwyn. And then 50, they gave it back to Zanuck. And the most recent person to or people to win is Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall from 2018. And the award wasn't given out prior to that until 2010 with Francis Ford Coppola. So there was a big gap then. It's been four years now since the Thalberg reward. And I don't think there's any plans to give another one out for this year. So it's definitely become a little bit more prestigious and also a little exclusive. Yeah. It seems like it's mainly just producers still. I mean, you have Coppola, but he was also a big producer at the time. Yeah. Especially after he directed George Lucas won in 91. I think it's his only quote unquote Oscar that he, uh, that he received in 91. What in a weird time. Well, this is, so that's six years after return of the Jedi. Oh yeah, I guess if it's that close, yeah. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's not like he was. It's doing... that weird in between era of the prequels and sequels, or you know, of the original trilogy. Fascinating. Yeah, it's very fascinating. But uh, I think we digress a little bit because you put Star Wars in front of us. Me and John are are gonna want to talk about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the best foreign language film goes to The Walls of Malapaga from France and Italy. Best special effects went to Destination Moon, George Pal Productions, and Eagle Line Classics. Destination Moon was one of the first major U.S. science fiction films to deal with the practical, scientific, and engineering challenges of space travel and to speculate on what a crewed expedition to the moon would look like. Famed science fiction author 
Robert A. Heinlein contributed to the screenplay. What a crazy world, too, because now in 2022, they just announced the building date, or maybe it's the final confirmation that they're building a studio in space. Really? Yeah. You didn't see this story? No, I didn't see this. Not for this podcast, but it's fascinating. Go look it up. Look up you know, production in space, and we're going to see movies actually shot in space. It's it's crazy, and to think you know, 1950, 70 years ago that we're just giving out awards to just how crazy it is to think about going to the moon is is wild to see how far we come now we're going to be shooting in space what gravity and, and interstellar weren't filmed in space yeah i'm sorry oh, to tell shit. you i'm sorry to tell you best film editing goes to ralph e winters and conrad a nervig for king solomon's minds this is winner's first of two academy awards in this category and he would go on to win for the 1959 Best Picture winner, Ben-Hur. And this is Nervig's second of two career Oscars. And he was the first recipient of the Academy Award for film editing for the film Eskimo in 1934. Just want to point out, uh, All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard were nominated in this category. I think Sunset Boulevard might have been the better edited film, but that is just me. But moving on to the Best Costume Design Color category went to Samson and Delilah to Edith Head, Dorothy Jenkins, Eloise Jensen, Guile Steele, and Gwen Wakeling. So this is a Cecil B. DeMille film. This is Jenkins' second of three Oscars after previously winning for Joan of Arc in 48. And the first year, the costume category was awarded. She also worked on The Ten Commandments, The Music Man, The Sound of Music, and Young Frankenstein. This is Jensen's only Oscar win. She was also nominated for Tron in 1982. This is Steele's second career win after previously winning for The Heiress. And he also worked on Mrs. Miniver, the 1942 Best Picture winner. And this is Wakeling's only career win. Leading off, uh, we're going to leave off head for just one more category. Best Costume Design, Black and White, goes to Edith Head and Charles Lemaire for All About Eve. This is Head's third of eight career Oscars and second Oscar of the evening. Head is one of six women to win multiple Oscars in the same evening. And that list includes Catherine Bigelow, Catherine Martin, Frances McDormand, Fran Walsh, and Chloe Zhao. And a fun little fact, the 23rd Academy Awards for 1950 produced five winners with multiple Academy Awards of the night. Yeah, so Edith Head really getting uh, really getting her due uh, this time. And, and just a quick note about Charles Lemaire. Uh, Lemaire was very instrumental in persuading the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences to institute a costume design category for the Oscars. God bless. Do you think this is uh, well-deserved? I mean, we haven't seen the magnificent... Yankee or Born Yesterday, but I gotta say the costuming and all about Eve. Oh my God, fantastic, yes. right? Yeah, I mean, I, I said it before, and I—if you know me—fashion is not my thing. I'm wearing <laughs> sweatpants and, and a t-shirt right now, uh, but I—I I really do believe that Margot's dress in that dinner scene is—it's stunning. It's so it the way that it it like ruffles up and like it. I I, I called her a lioness before, and I think it really does add to like this mane that she has and. I really love the the dress. And then when you see it in color and and the red, it's just it's perfect. And and I really, I usually never talk about costume design, and, and that one I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think it really helps when your film's about like elite people in the theater. So you get awesome, beautiful suits, and you get these beautiful gowns and dresses, and all sorts of really luxury items. It, it definitely helps. Moving on to best cinematography, color went to King Solomon's Minds to Robert Surtees. This is Surtees' first of three Oscar wins. He would win. For the Bad and the Beautiful in 1952 and the 1959 Best Picture winner, Ben-Hur. 
And other movies he worked on was the 1962 version of Mutiny on the Bounty, The Graduate, The Last Picture Show, and The Sting, which was the 1973 Best Picture winner, but he did not win an award for that. Best Cinematography Black and White goes to Robert Krasker for The Third Man. This is Krasker's only career win, and he was actually the first Australian cinematographer to win an Oscar. The second wouldn't come until 1990, when Dean Selmer won for Dances with Wolves. Moving on to Best Art Direction Set Decoration Color goes to Samson and Delilah. Art Direction by Hans Dreer and Walter Tyler. Set Decoration by Samuel M. Comer and Roy Moyer. Best Art Direction Set Decoration Black and White goes to Hans Dreer and John Meehan. Set Direction by Samuel M. Comer and Ray Moyer for the film Sunset Boulevard. What? The same people winning twice again? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty crazy. I mean, I wonder if it just shows how small it is to be in like art direction and just still how small these segments of Hollywood really is. And especially the top of these segments. I'm sure there's hundreds of people working below these big names, but really shows still how small Hollywood is. Yeah. And the only difference between those two categories was John Meehan won for black and white and Walter Tyler won for color, but Dreer, Comer and Moyer one for both uh, for that night. Moving on to best sound recording goes to Thomas T. Moulton to All About Eve. This is Moulton's fifth and final career Oscar win. This is the first best picture winner to win a best sound category. And the sound category is also introduced by Marilyn Monroe in the night at, at the ceremony in 1950. So, very interesting that they use Marilyn Monroe. I've read speculation that people were trying to kind of like bring her more into this, into the starlight and be like, Oh my God, look at this Marilyn Monroe. Now she's giving out awards. Isn't she great? Yeah. I wonder who's behind this. Like who's pushing this? I guess like people, Asians, PR people. You know? Yeah. They just see like the potential and how beautiful this woman is. And they're just like, put her on stage. People are going to love it. Yeah. But what does that say about one that this is the first one to win a sound category. So now we're 23 ceremonies in, we're finally giving a best picture winner this really in a very iconic moment in Hollywood where sound films became a thing. So now one is finally getting recognized. And I think that it's actually well-deserved. I and mean, we, we've, we talked about how a whole scene was constructed in the theater and how that, you know, dichotomy of it being in a big space, but up close shots. And it's the sound of it was just really perfect. I don't think there's really anything wrong with the sound in this movie just in general. Yeah. That's the first scene I think about when I think of like sound recording for all about Eve I'm trying to think of like other reasons why it would maybe stand out a part of others, but I don't know. Maybe there just wasn't enough competition that year. I mean, we have Cinderella, which we haven't even mentioned, which is pretty unbelievable that that isn't even with the one who wins for sound recording, especially as iconic as that film is. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how to even take that because it's not like a film that's all about sound design and, and about how like you can just listen to it. No, it's very much about the script and, and the performances here. So it's it's interesting. I don't know what to make of that, honestly. Best original song goes to Ray Evans and Jay Livingston for Mona Lisa from Captain Carey. Bippity Boppity Boo was nominated this year. And the fact that, that didn't win and that song is constantly stuck in my head and that's just a classic. It's kind of bullshit. It's, it's really wild that Disney's cranking out these iconic movies and there's people like being raised today still watching mm-hmm. Cinderella. It's it's really wild. Mona Lisa, does that have you heard I, of that? No. That sounds so familiar. I'm trying to think of what that even is. 
I don't know. I don't know. Time to listen to it. Time to listen. But moving on to the best scoring of a musical picture category goes to Adolf Dutch and Roger Edens for Annie Get Your Gun. This is Dutch's first of three career Oscar wins. This is Edens third consecutive Oscar win in the category. After winning for Easter Parade in 48 and On the Town in 1949, this is the longest consecutive winning streak in the best score category. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Franz Waxman for Sunset Boulevard. This is Waxman's first of two consecutive wins, and he would go on to win for A Place in the Sun in 1951. He also worked on The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Philadelphia Story, as well as Rebecca. So we like kind of talked about this, and we didn't... We talked about this off the mic, but we talked about how the score of All About Eve, which was nominated in this category... Sounded very similar to Gone with the Wind. Very similar. It was like missing one or two notes at the very end. I don't really know why that connection is there. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's just a coincidence of just how the melody plays out. But yeah, I didn't really find the score to be... I mean, it's it's definitely there to kind of push us through certain moments and transition us. But it very much was about the dialogue here. And that this there's barely much music in this film in general honestly it's like the song that she asks the piano player to play and then turns off is like one of the biggest moments that i think of when i think of music and it actually isn't even a part of the the scoring really that's a a third party song that came from another composer i believe best live action short subject to real went to in beaver valley best live action short subject one real went to gordon hollingshead for granddad of races Best Documentary Short Subject went to Why Korea. Best Documentary Feature went to The Titan, Story of Michelangelo. Best Short Subject Cartoon went to Gerald McBoingboing. (laughs) 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 Tell us about Gerald McBoingboing. (laughs) So the second I read that, I immediately... I had that same exact reaction that I did now to Gerald McBoing Blank. So I was like, I got to watch this. And I, and I watched, I watched it and it was like, it was good because it, it was the way it's drawn is like this. It feels like it's constantly being drawn. I feel it, that's the way it feels, but I didn't feel like it was anything like that great. Cause apparently in 1994, it was voted as the number nine of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time by members of the animation field. And I just, I mean, like it's a really, it's just a funny name, but I don't know if it's like this great cartoon. So um, it's certainly interesting. But yeah, you can't really get better than Gerald McBoing Boing. <laughs> Best motion picture story went to Edna Anhalt and Edward Anhalt for Panic in the Streets. This is a husband and wife combination winning their only career Academy Awards. I wanted to talk about it because again, we get to we finally have some Oscar clips that we can really start watching. We've had a few before, but this one, we, we had a good chunk. And the presenter for this presented all three of the writing categories, motion picture, adapted, and original screenplays. And she was like, well, there's been a lot of confusion over the years of <laughs> of these conversations. I was like, oh, do tell me, please, what, yeah, what, the, what the difference is. And so basically she said that motion picture story, which is just the stupidest one, and, and it's going to even sound stupider now. <laughs> is the award given out to an idea that germinates but is not actually a script so it's like the best idea that we've had but not necessarily the one that's fleshed out the best remains the best film 
So it's like, okay, oh. I would love to go back in time. And for, I think, the 20 years that Motion Picture Story was around, I'd be like, okay, think about this. There are these things called hobbits that then walk, <laughs> <laughs> that take this ring of power. And I would just pitch every single story from today's world and pitch it because everyone would be like, whoa, that's a really good story. I wonder if that could be made into a film because that is the most bullshit category to be like, well, it's the, just the ideas we're going to give out awards to. Or it's like, well, then I'm going to go write a great fucking Grammy award winning album because I'm just thinking <laughs> of the idea behind it. I think it, that's interesting, though, that it's kind of framed around that context because it does change a lot i mean what i was always thinking it was is that it was more so just the the best story that we haven't seen on film which in almost in a way it is kind of that but it's just framed in the way that no this is just the best story concept maybe it's new it doesn't have to be but maybe it's not the best film it's but not it's, the best script but it's still scripts that are being written so it's like this the script's there but you know in a way, this is like, what's the best log line almost? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what's the best idea for a story? And that's it. Which is weird because, like, you need to know the film to understand the story. So this is just such a confusing award. Yeah, it, it's extremely confusing. And I, I, I've i said it before, I don't like it. So getting to hear like that reasoning for it just really cemented my, mm, I don't like this award. But moving on to best story and screenplay goes to Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr. for Sunset Boulevard. This is Wilder's third out of six total Academy Awards. Previously won for The Lost Weekend, the 1945 Best Picture winner, and would win three more awards for the 1960 Best Picture winner, The Apartment. This is Brackett's third out of five Academy Awards. He previously won for The Lost Weekend for Picture and Adapted Screenplay, and he would go on to win for Best Original Screenplay for the 1953 Titanic and he would get an honorary award in 1957, and this is Marshman's only career win. In 1998, Sunset Boulevard was ranked number 12 on the AFI's list of the 100 best American films of the 20th century, and in 2007, it was 16th in their 10-year anniversary list. So this is an iconic film. This is definitely a big... The, the, like, when you think of classic Hollywood, when you think about aging stars, I think modern days you do think about Sunset Boulevard, and this is, again, like one of those, it's a really strong story and screenplay. And it kind of begs that question, does this deserve some Best Picture awards? Mm, maybe. Maybe. Just maybe. Best Screenplay goes to Joseph L. Mankiewicz from The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr for All About Eve. Mary Orr adapted her short story, The Wisdom of Eve, into a radio play before selling the film's rights. It aired on NBC's Radio City Playhouse on January 24th, 1949, starring Claudia Morgan and Marilyn Erskine. Orr received no on-screen or official credit for her story, which 20th Century Fox purchased for $3,500. Orr revealed in October 11th, 1950, Variety News item that the story was inspired by the actual experience of Polish-born actress Elizabeth Bergner, who had once befriended a young actress. In a modern interview, however, Orr noted that Eve Harrington was a combination of many young actresses I had met, including a great deal of myself. In a modern interview, Mankiewicz disclosed that an archetype for the character Margot Channing was 18th century actress Peg Woofington. So this deservedly won, this screenplay. It is a knockout. It is, it's phenomenal in, in so many ways. And when we look at the past Best Picture winners that 
have won Oscars for screenwriting. Ones that stick out are the best years of our lives, The Lost Weekend, Casablanca. I think that you have to put Gone with the Wind in there. And that's probably it. I mean, and It Happened One Night's really great too. But All About Eve, maybe the best one of 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 some of those bigger best picture winners in terms of a script. Like I really do believe that. Is there on any of the other best picture winners that we've seen previously that have won an Oscar for a screenplay that you think could overtake all about Eve because right now I think Eve is number one. Uh, that's really tough. I think it would be like between Casablanca and all about Eve. I think Casablanca because it's a little bit faster to the point. I think all about Eve in terms of it's like plotting gets kind of lost, but man, it, it would be hard if you said what is like the best dialogue between the two. And I might have to say all about Eve because it is so witty and it's so fresh and it's, it still feels so relevant in today's world, even though all the references that are made are, are very dated and, and hard to really pick up on. But man, what a smart and just absolutely like laugh out loud, hilarious like screenplay. Like the, I'm sure the screenplay was just as funny uh, without the great performances that we have in it. Moving on to the best supporting actress category. This one went to Josephine Hull for Harvey for her role as Veda Louise Simmons. Hull only made six films in her career that spanned 50 years and mostly on the Broadway stage. This was her only win and nomination. And I actually found this to be an interesting story of what Harvey is. Harvey is the story centers on a man played by James Stewart, whose best friend is a puka named Harvey, a six foot three and a half inch tall white invisible rabbit and the ensuing debacle when the man's sister played by Josephine Hull tries to have him committed to a sanitarium and so this seems a very interesting plot to have uh, Jimmy Stewart in playing with some invisible character um, so you think this is like Wilfred where like we see the bunny but no one else does or you think it just we never we just see Jimmy <laughs> Stewart just talking to himself I don't know but I'm, this is one of those movies I think I might have to put on my like, oh we're media. gonna have to watch <laughs> we're this together watch this. late at night yeah. <laughs> with some vibes going on for sure but interestingly in this category and we actually haven't really talked about this is that Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter uh, who played Karen Richards and Birdie in the film respectively we're, uh, we're nominated in this category together. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is that All About Eve got 14 nominations, which is tied for the most ever. Still is tied for the... It's a single record for amount of nominations in any ceremony. So already, like, they had some wins early on. They got the writing. But now in the supporting actress category, they had two chances. Didn't get either one. Do you think either one could have gotten it? Or do you think they were the wrong choices? Yeah, the 14 wins is tied with Titanic and 14 nominations 14 yes 14 nominations is tied with the Titanic and uh, La La Land right oh yeah so it's Celeste Home and then we have Thelma Ritter there's always that question when it comes to best supporting actress or actor where it's like how much time do they actually need to be in the film do they need to be important does it matter how many minutes they're actually on screen because then you get to the point of like well should Thelma Ritter be nominated for Birdie like she plays such a small part to this film she's really funny I, I don't know what watching this film you'd immediately like point at her and be like oh we she's great like she needs to be nominated because I think she's has such little to do with the film it's, she's like in the film for the first hour and then she's basically gone after the first hour and that's fine you know you could be in a small part as long as it's really significant but it's also not that significant to the film and there's not that big of like a big moment where you'd be like yep there it is there's that nomination 
for Celeste home, I mean, it makes more sense. We have Karen, who's kind of the the tripod of the three women, and she's the one who's kind of thinks she's like helping pull the strings, but really she's being manipulated. So we have some of that, and we have some of the moments like with her and Margot in the car, where you kind of see her performance change, and you get a little bit more of that acting with an, an acting scene, and you get some complexity there. But no, I think it, it makes sense, and and they're not truly worthy all the way to be the best supporting actress of the year. Yeah, th- this feel and we're going to get there in a few categories, but it feels like someone should have been in this category but wasn't. Best supporting actor goes to George Sanders for All About Eve as Addison DeWitt. Sanders began his career on stage in the UK and transitioned to Broadway in the 1930s. Sanders appeared in a few British films and was discovered by 20th Century Fox and starred as the villain in Lloyd's of London in 1936, earning him a seven-year contract with the studio. He would also star in the B-series movies The Saint, an anti-hero crime-fighting character, and then in another B-series movie, The Falcon, a detective. He is also best known for his roles in Rebecca, Foreign Correspondence, Samson and Delilah, Ivanhoe, King Richard and the Crusaders, and Mr. Freeze in a two-parter episode of Batman 1966, as well as the voice of Shere Khan in Disney's The Jungle Book from 1967. So, big Batman fan here. Yeah, I knew you would like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that he's Mr. Freeze. I've definitely seen those episodes, but i got to go back now that we've seen him in a couple Best Picture winners and, and really see if he gives a worthy performance <laughs> as Mr. Freeze. Yeah, I mean, I... It's certainly, again, this is, I would not have picked that George Sanders would be the one getting the Oscar out of the whole entire cast, but I think it's deservedly so. He, he gives a very chilling performance. He's very quick. There's He gives some great lines, and at the end, when he's basically controls Eve, he really cements himself, which I think is, which is why he got the Oscar, and uh, it really good job by George Sanders. Moving on to Best Actress. The winner is Judy Holliday for Born Yesterday as Emma Billy Dawn. Judy Holliday began her career as part of the nightclub act before working in Broadway plays and musicals. Her success as Billy Dawn in the 1946 stage production of Born Yesterday led her to being in the cast of the 1950 film version. She won the Oscar and a Golden Globe Award. Author Garson Kanan wrote the play for Gene Arthur, but when Arthur left New York for personal reasons, Kanan selected Holliday two decades Arthur's junior as her replacement. She received rave reviews for her performance in Born Yesterday on Broadway, and Harry Cohen offered her the chance to repeat her role in the film version, but only after a screen test, which at first was used only as a benchmark against which to evaluate other actresses being considered for the role. So I'm going to put Judy Holiday to the side. I have to see Born Yesterday to give a true judgment. But what the fuck is going on that uh, <laughs> Betty Davis is not getting the Oscar for fucking all about Eve? I, I am, ex- I'm just dumbfounded. Like, how can you watch that movie and go, huh? That d- that doesn't deserve to win the Oscar. And like, I, I know, and this is I was alluding to before. So Ann Baxter was also nominated in this category. So you have two actresses from the same film competing competing for best lead actress, which is just like a, a stupid thing to allow to happen. And the fact that Ann Baxter advocated to be in this category is just ridiculous because she is truly just a supporting actress. And, and that's not to, to downgrade her or demean her in any way, but Eve's role is not anything of a lead part. So it really is Betty Davis's movie. And the fact, and so people speculate that because of this, Ann Baxter split the vote from Betty Davis actually winning the award, which is just absolutely ridiculous that this many people weren't voting for, 
for Betty Davis. I know she won two Oscars before this, but my God, this is definitely her best role. This is one of the best roles we have seen so far. And and honestly, when I look ahead to our 30th episode, when we're going to break down that decade of movies, she's already my shoe-in for Best Actress. I don't think there's another movie looking at the list of Best Picture winners. Spoiler, bro. I'm sorry. I got to say it's <laughs> seven episodes ahead. But to me, Betty Davis is just the knockout. And, and honestly, behind Claudette Colbert, and I think honestly this is better than Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind. Betty Davis is Damn, like one of the Damn. best. It's a, it's a phenomenal role, and so I am dumbfounded that she didn't win. I do agree, but I have to be the other guy who goes with Gloria Swanson. I mean, she in Sunset Boulevard, she absolutely dominates that film as That's Norma fair. Desmond, and she is very much like Betty Davis, where like every moment that she's on screen, like you can't take your eyes away from her, and. Every moment she's off screen, you're like, no, go back to go back to her character. She's insane. I love watching. It's so entertaining. And she's very similar almost to Margot, too. But it's almost like Margot, but in another 20 years, like a fully going down the rabbit hole of Hollywood and celebrity and really losing sight of who you are as a person. And she really, really plays that up. And it is creepy and disturbing and so entertaining. And yeah, if I honestly, if I had to pick. I would have to watch Sunset Boulevard again, but right now I would maybe go with Gloria Swanson. I think that's totally fair. I, I and okay, I can understand that, like what what you just said. I definitely agree with all that, but j- it just to me, it's the it's a quick wittiness. It's I like yeah, Gloria Swanson gives this like very chilling and haunting performance, but like that's like I'm not gonna say she's one note, but that's like the one singular like constant beat in her character, which is like a good thing that she's supposed to be like what the fuck lady like there's something going on with you whereas with Margot and 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 betty davis she it it's it, it's like a fucking richter scale it goes from zero to 100 like so quickly and she and it to me like i, I don't know i just really love like the way she's able to deliver lines her facial expressions there's so many great there's like a moment in the scene with her and bill and the dinner party before everyone shows up where and when i was talking about that square of them going around the room is that she three times she goes to this bowl of chocolates three times <laughs> And I don't, and it's just really great acting where she's not saying anything. She's only just mimicking and doing things, but she picks up the bowl. Do I eat the chocolate? Then she puts it down. And then she goes back to it again. Do I eat the chocolate? And she doesn't. And then it's the third time she finally does eat the chocolate. And just like that alone is like really great acting. It's so, it's emotive. It, the way their body movement, it, I, I absolutely love it. So I, they're both great roles and I, I would have been fine with either one winning, but how the fuck does like Judy Holiday win? <laughs> For this. It's, it's so so bizarre I, I, it has to be the split votes and then maybe there's split votes with Gloria Swanson as well that being a popular film this year and maybe just kind of they all got so split that it went for one of the last kind of leading women here but I'm glad you called out that scene with the chocolate because that's the scene we didn't we talked about it but we didn't mention the chocolates and it is a great not only acting performance and blocking but it's also a great thematic way of, of showing where she's at and the more frustrated she gets then she eventually eats the chocolate and it also has to do with her health and her age and her weight and it has so many it has so much to do with just her eating chocolate in one scene and it's way more and it's way more complex than that thematically for the plot so yeah i love that i'm glad you called that out yeah definitely and i just want to ask one more thing about this is if if betty davis and gloria swanson were competing today who do you think would win uh, it's man. based on just those like movies and roles like in today's world and the way that probably Swanson just yeah. based on how like dramatic her entrance and exit is in the film I feel like with today's mindset a lot of people would like forget about 
Betty Davis. I mean, she's amazing in the movie, but the way the movie is structured, the last 40 minutes that you, they kind of like leave her out of the movie. And I think a lot of people really just remember the beginning and ends of films and they'll just kind of, the rest is a little iffy and just blank for them. So yeah, it would probably go to Swanson for just how big and, and grandiose that performance is. Yeah, I would, I would definitely have to agree in today's world. She probably would win. Best actor goes to Jose Fur for Serrano de Bergiac as Serrano de Bergiac. Fur is the first Puerto Rican born actor and first Hispanic actor to win an Oscar. Fur is best remembered for his performance in the title role of Serrano de Bergiac, which he first played on Broadway. The production became one of the hits of the 1946-47 Broadway season, winning Fur the Best Actor Tony Award for his depiction of the long-nosed poet-slash-swordsman. He would go on to win for his portrayal in the Hollywood production as well, and fun little fact, he is the uncle of George Clooney. But I, like, that was really surprising, I think, to see that. So I, I've never heard of that George Clooney's uncle was an Oscar winner, let alone Jose Ferrer, but... Some another fun fact about this is that Jose Ferrer he was a stage manager at the Suffering Country Playhouse, which is in my hometown. So this guy was, I mean, long before I was born or any of my family was there. Like the fact that he existed there and and just knowing that there's like this Oscar presence in my hometown is kind of cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And also a note with Serrano, the the famous role that won him the Best Actor as well as Best Actor for the Tony Award is actually a movie that was just released this year or a remake or adaptation of it starring Peter Dinklage. That brings up the question. I don't really know that much about Serrano and I don't really, my understanding is simply based on the trailer that I've seen with Peter Dinklage and that's Peter Dinklage being someone who's never going to be able to fall in love with this, like this beautiful woman and he has to use someone as his like gateway into her heart in a way. But is it always portrayed as just someone ugly because the description here is a long nosed poet slash swordsman so it's like it, they're playing like disfigured kind of ugly poets is basically what yeah. what it's supposed to be i i guess so i i'm actually really excited for this movie it's not on like wide release but i yeah. guess it ran on like a festival circuit i'm sure so it's been out but it's not i think it's like february 28th is like when really late yeah. or it's like when you can like watch it in theaters and I don't know if it's going to get a lot of Oscar attention, but I honest, think he might get a nom. That trailer, to be honest, looks really good. And so I, I so I tend to not like look too much into the movie, into like the stories and stuff. So I don't know if the whole idea is that like Serrano is supposed to be an ugly guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm certainly fascinated by it. And uh, it's cool to see like the repetition, but also a little scary that like, OK, we got to stop making the same stuff. shit over and over yeah. again. But I mean, if you're going to uh, making it an adaptation that changes it and it makes it about someone like Peter Dinklage, who's like a little person and, and adding that kind of like dynamic to it makes it very different. And, and that kind of changes the way the story works. Yeah. That really caught me, um, caught my attention because I just, that's really fascinating, especially not only that this just happened in conjunction with this film coming out, but also how they kind of changed the production to kind of match the lead yeah and also best actress and best actor won by people who performed that role in a broadway production before their hollywood role so very interesting that perfect for all about eve too where the hollywood comes right to theater theater comes right to hollywood exactly so moving on to the best director category this one goes to joseph l mankiewicz for all about eve 
This is Mankiewicz's fourth career Oscar win, second Best Director Award, and second of the evening. He previously won the previous year for the Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Director for A Letter to Three Wives. Mankiewicz became one of three directors to win back-to-back Best Director Awards, joining John Ford, who accomplished the feat for The Grapes of Wrath and How Green Is My Valley, and Alejandro G. Iñárritu, who's the most recent to accomplish this with Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, and The Revenant. Mankiewicz also joins Gordon Hollingshead and Alan Merkin as the only individuals to win multiple Oscars in consecutive years. Mankiewicz graduated from Columbia in 1928, and in 29, he got a contract to work as a writer for Paramount through his brother, Herman, who co-wrote and won the Oscar for Citizen Kane 1941. Mankiewicz's career credits in producing, directing, and writing include films such as The Philadelphia Story, Guys and Dolls, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, and No Way Out. So this guy is pretty well decorated and pretty well entrenched in Hollywood and its history. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I didn't know he directed the Philadelphia story. I well, love he, that pr- movie. he produced it. So produced. I include, yeah, he produced uh, that one. But the fact that he was involved in so many great movies and wrote them um, is pretty astounding. Yeah, and with Cleopatra, too, being like one of the biggest bombs ever, too. That's like a fascinating history with even Julius Caesar, too. These are like such iconic properties that he's been a part of. And of course, Citizen Kane. We didn't really even talk that much about Mank, too, and, and the. I like forgot how much of the brother was even in the film. We spoke yeah. a little bit about that outside of the the podcast here. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And um, just a side note, I watched uh, A Letter to Three Wives, which is what he won in the previous year, and that was a really good movie too. I, I would highly recommend. He does a lot of really interesting technical stuff in that movie, especially for sound um, that was pretty innovative that I hadn't seen uh, in any of the movies, and and honestly, in a lot of other older films but i certainly think that he deserves this win i mean this is a very well-made movie um i i again like i like a lot of the shot choices i like that he lets it breathe with the long takes i i'm I'm very impressed with uh with his direction and i know like you don't like his cinematography i know you don't like the length of the film but i still think the direction and how he's able to give direction to the actors and, and and the writing of it is just incredibly strong yeah, it's really all about blocking and, you know, the performances coming from that script. And I think he nails that, absolutely nails it. I mean, the cinematography, I don't dislike it. It's just kind of there. It does its job to show what's going on on screen. And it's cool to see these longer takes and to have, like, these uh, actors kind of, like, really chew the scenery and just chew this amazing script. So it works and it plays for the film. And, yeah, this is totally well-deserved and worthy. And the best motion picture for 1950. The nominations are Sunset Boulevard, King Solomon's Mines, Father of the Bride, Born Yesterday, and our winner from Daryl F. Zanuck for 20th Century Fox goes to All About Eve. (laughs) So obviously we know this is our winner. What we have here is some other films and we've both seen Sunset Boulevard so that's kind of like the main competition. What I didn't even know was a remake. What I didn't even know was an older film is Father of the Bride, which I love the Steve Martin 90s, I think it is. Maybe it's late 80s Father of the Bride. I really, really love that movie. So I got to go back and educate myself <laughs> on the original movie. I had no idea that was a sequel. What a hilarious movie. And yeah. the sequel is pretty good, too. Yeah, it, it's certainly very interesting. I think that the debate around this is 
Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. I think it's very funny that and, and interesting that two movies that are essentially about the same exact things, but one takes place in theater and one takes place in film, that the one in about the theater is the one to win Best Picture, not the one about film. I don't know if that's because Sunset Boulevard might have been a little edgy. It's definitely edgier, and it, when you think about them, they're... I would say All About Eve is very much a melodrama. It's about internal life of these people. It's about the domestic life and, and their career life. While Sunset Boulevard is very much a mystery. I mean, the opening is about a, a dead body. It's a noir and, thriller. Yeah, noir mystery thriller that you're trying to figure out You know the details, too, of, of the very beginning. Same way that All About Eve shows us the beginning. But All About Eve is not really... It's kind of giving us context... But it's one of those smart beginnings where you don't really realize how much context it's giving you until you've seen the whole film. While Sunset Boulevard is uh, much more simpler when it's just like, here's a dead body. Why am I dead? How did this happen? Boom, here we go. It kind of grabs you faster in a way, but it's not as detailed and, and precise as something like All About Eve. But what would you say is more worthy, though? Would you go and lean for All About Eve and that amazing performance by Betty Davis? Or would you consider Sunset Boulevard as, as being the worthy choice? I think I think All About Eve is, is certainly um, deserving of the award. Had it been another year, I think Sunset Boulevard could have won Best Picture. And, I find, and that happens a lot with these movies where there are two really good films. We saw that with... How Green Is My Valley and Citizen Kane. I, you could have seen either one going either way, and, and one of those went another year. They probably could have won that, and barring some outside influence as well. So who knows if that was also a factor in this. I mean, there's always an Oscar politics, but I, I still think I'd edge... I think I would edge out Sunset Boulevard with All About Eve, but I still think Sunset Boulevard... It wouldn't have surprised me if it won this year, and we could have been talking about a, a totally different film and totally different set of circumstances. So it would have been interesting. But let's get into some facts and numbers. All About Eve currently holds a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes of an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 9.28. The uh, the top critics percentage is a 97 with an average rating of 9 out of 10. The audience score is a 94 with an average rating of 4.48 out of 5. IMDb gives it an 8.2 which is certainly one of the higher end ones that of the best picture winners we have seen. Metacritic gives it a 98. It was nominated 14 times, which we said was a Oscar or tied for the Oscar record with Titanic and La La Land. So something that's held true since 1950 and has yet to be broken by any film, but it only won six awards. So John, what would you rate all about Eve? I gave all about Eve an 82. Uh, I kind of came to the conclusion. I originally had it a little bit lower. I watched it again. I think it kind of fleshed out a lot more. It gave me a lot of perspective on really the characters and what the story was trying to do within the script. It's it's very fast-paced and in the actual dialogue and the writing, so you can kind of miss what he's trying to do here. And I kind of didn't really fully appreciate it until the second watch. And uh, 82 might seem like a little bit lower for how much we like the movie. I mean, my critiques are mainly plot related. I think the third act kind of really slows down too much. I wish it kind of heightened up and, and became more of a dramatic ending and confrontation between Margot. Um, but an 82 is, is similar. I gave the same to Hamlet. Uh, I gave an 88 to Casablanca and an 80 to Rebecca. So there's some others numbers in there to kind of show you 
how similar and a little bit further away than other films are. But Ben, what about you? What did you give all about Eve? I don't remember you gave Casablanca in 88. We have to talk about this afterwards. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) my rating is an 89, which honestly for me is surprising. Originally, I actually gave it an 86. So I was not in love with this film the first time I watched it. The second time I was very much more in the third time I watched it when I watched it with you. I was much more involved in love with it, but at the same time, my criticism is still that this movie is is way too long. There's way too many scenes where I don't care about scenes with Eve and Karen, or it's Karen and Lloyd, or it's Bill and Eve. Like I don't really care about those scenes too much, and they go on for so long that you lose my interest in parts of the film, and so that really downgrades it for me because you really for. I think it's like two hours and 20 minutes. Like you really got to keep me engaged to really like this movie. And a lot of movies today that, that are like two and a half hours long really fail to do that. So this movie didn't pass the length test, which is, which bumps down a lot for me. So in 89 might seem like, well, but you gave like uh Hamlet a 94 or, you know, you gave, let's see, uh, how can I use my value in 88? And then if you take, you can't take it with you in 89. So it's like, I'm not saying they're equal films, I think All About Eve is, is incredible, but that length and the way it slows it down really takes a lot out of me to give it just a B-plus rating. I think that if it was 20 minutes shorter, this would be an A movie uh, for me personally. So our average rating, John, right now out of the 23 movies we have seen, you're sitting at a 7.78. Honestly, it's just a 71. And for me, I'm sitting at a 76.69, so that's a 77 average rating. So still... A little bit lower because, again, of some awful movies that we've seen. So we sort of alluded it to before, but is All About Eve worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1950? While I would give it to Sunset Boulevard, I'm going to say yes, it is worthy. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is definitely worthy. Um, this movie, I I still think it's a, it's a great movie, but yeah, there's some flaws with it that from a technical standpoint, really downgrades it, but it's certainly worthy of its award. So that's pretty much it. Johnny, have any final thoughts on All About Eve before we sign off? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. It's going to be a bumpy night. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is worthy. worthy. May I have the envelope, please? I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Daryl F. Zanuck, of course, come to the stage to accept the award for the best motion picture of 1950, All About Eve. This picture received 14 nominations for Academy Awards this year, setting a new record. Thank you very much. I've said it all, and I want to thank again everyone at 20th Century Fox, and particularly I want to thank someone that you've already well rewarded tonight. Thank you, Joe. It's time for the trumpets to sound the long salute to the film achievements of 1950. The Academy thanks you in the audience and you listening over the air for your interest in good pictures. It is a high privilege to serve you. Good night. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.